Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike G, and I'm so excited about today's episode. I got George Bell sitting with me. Hey, what's up, Mike? What's going on, man? How are you feeling much. right now? I'm feeling better. I'm getting over some bronchitis. You look like bronchitis right oh, now. It, 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 I can't be sick like this. I have so much shit to do. What I was got, I saying? Ain't nobody got time for this? Ain't nobody got time for this, man. I got too much shit to do, and it just came at the wrong time. Yeah. Any time uh, with bronchitis, I feel like it's the wrong time. Uh, just, Is it uh, contagious? It depends on if you have the uh, the viral or the something else. But uh, I was with you the whole time, and I didn't get sick at all. Yeah, so I think I just it was just your my Genetics. bronchioles got you know Genetics. Yeah, a lot of the you know a lot of the mucus and just the gross stuff. I just mm. it might have been that Nebraska trip and uh, breathing and all that feces that uh, you're exposed to. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about 5.11, our first sponsor. You, we, we've been strategic partners with 5.11 for a good while now. A good while. I like that. That sounds good. Oh, country. yeah. Uh, but a good while. And uh, they've been good to us, but we've been doing these uh, survival seminars everywhere yep. we go. And they have graced us with some of the best coupon codes and opportunities for our customers than anybody else. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So right now, you know, it's the holiday season coming up. You got Black Friday coming up this week, you know, you know, and they have a thing called what's your holiday mission. So they have all these, it's kind of like a gift guide menu. You know, you get the mission, the holiday party, you have mission deck, the halls, you have mission, lose the holiday weight. So my one I looked at was the holiday go bag. So if you're looking for someone, uh, you know, that, is into the 511 Tactical or you want to get them on there, you know, look at, you go to the 511tactical.com and go to the Mission Holiday Go Bag and it gives you everything that you need, whether it could be the Capital Pant, the Quest Pant, all the way down to the jackets they have. You know, they got the Repel Jacket, the Falcon Jacket, all the bags, Rush 24, Backpack, 37 liters, any gear you need, you just go on there and it kind of sets it up to where if you want to get that certain someone, your special, your special guy, your special girl, you know, they, they're into like being prepared and having a go bag. All this stuff is right underneath there under the go bag, mission go bag. I like, I think that's pretty cool. It's getting through the holidays because it, it obviously takes the right mindset, but it also takes the right gear. And uh, everything 5.11 makes is built working closely with the most demanding professionals in the field. I mean, exactly. it's operator approved and definitely field tested. I mean, we're, we're field testing some of the stuff. And now you can check out all this gear and um, that we talked about at 5.11tactical.com. And you could save the yeah. biggest coupon code that we have ever, which is FIELD25 at checkout. In addition to 25% off, Fieldcraft shoppers can also get a free American flag patch when you use the code. Again, that code is FIELD25 at checkout at 511tactical.com. Now remember, this sale is good through now until the 2nd of December, which is through the holidays, these early holidays leading into uh uh, the big holidays, which is the Chris Mass. Um, so, yeah, 511tactical.com. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good discount. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. Triarch Systems, we're going to do some video stuff with them recently. Yes, we are. I have to. We have to pick a date, that's all. We have to reschedule. You know, if I shoot open, Triarch, if you're listening to this, man, I'm just I'm trying to look for that open class gun. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you if you got a Glock custom open class gun, I'll shoot it, man. I might I might not be the best. I might be the worst, but your gun will make me a little bit better. Just saying, just saying. If you want to sponsor, look it up. But TriarchSystems.com makes custom pistols, carbines, rifles. We actually use their stuff. All of us carry their truck gun. I use their 17 Charlie and their Glock 43 custom Glock builds that are used for my everyday carry, but also for my teaching of the classes. Um, also, 
And if you use Fieldcraft at checkout, that's one word, Fieldcraft, you'll save 5% on any build or anything in their stores. And for a build, 5% is a big deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, this podcast is sponsored by Killcliff. You're a fan of Killcliff. I love Killcliff. I drink it. I drink the Ignite every... Do we drink too much Killcliff? <laughs> uh, you know... I probably get an average of three a day. That's I'm doing three a day, but you I'm know? not. I'm not. Look, the ignite is ignite for a reason. Yeah, it it, it gets yeah. you going in the morning. I drink that before I work out every morning, and I do the endure during, and I do the recovery after. I call it my kill cliff challenge. You know, you made it, that up. They I, should I, do that. I might have to hit them up about that. You, I'm, man, that's another sponsorship level. Exactly. That's like, that's that's like, like tier, tier one. one you know? Yeah. So if you use survival one zero at checkout, that's survival one zero at killcliff.com, You'll save ten percent. And let me tell you something. This pomegranate punch recover is the bomb. Oh, you like that? I haven't tried that one yet. It, it is the I bomb. Have to get that. It is so delish. Okay. And then look, man, I can't say enough about the CBD. We're out of them, by the way. They're all in my fridge at home. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I got five of them. Okay, good, good. I, dude, I saw them. I was like, you know what? I don't take a lot of stuff. I usually give. I'm in the spirit of giving. Yeah, the CBD ones. But I'm you getting greedy keep. with those CBDs. Yeah, and they have a couple new flavors out too. I think one's like grape. They have a great flavor, and then they have like, like a that mango flavor, one. That I want to get that one. That purple drink. That purple drink. Uh, Survival10kickliff.com. Valley Food Storage. Man, oh, Valley Food Storage. We need, I need this whole entire thingamajiggy um, for my, my food storage because I didn't realize that this stuff, like the chicken a la king, is good for 25 years. Oh, yeah. How is that possible? And it's freeze-dried. It's not, there's no chemicals I'll be added. dead in 25 years. It's, there's nothing. There's no GMOs. There's no additives. It's everything that you read on the back, you can pronounce, and you know what it is. It's no all fillers, natural. No fillers. Nothing. And it tastes... It tastes good. Isn't it? Are that you going to get us a count? I'm waiting. I the guys. I'm waiting I, on the guy. Why do I, you say I'm waiting all the time? Does that mean I'm, that you I haven't done anything? And I'm, no, I emailed and called and just. I'm just waiting on this guy. Man, so I'm, I will call tomorrow. That's like doing a post and just saying like I'm waiting I to know. make sales. Like you just posted something. You didn't do anything. I'm terrible. Um, for this coupon code, you can use Fieldcraft. You podcasted these guys too. Yes, I did. Which I, is a good podcast. Yeah. Good, good, good. Are you good sure? Job by the way. Really? What'd you say? What was it? The word? I love it. I said like I a lot. Love Love it, <laughs> like like I love it. Like, um, if you use Philcraft, you have to text it, right? Yeah. Text the word Philcraft to two nine zero seven one. Actually, text it on your phone. Like, go and actually type in two nine zero seven one, and then text the word Philcraft, and you'll save twenty percent off your first order. And I go big, man. Um, I would as well. Around. Go big, get prepared, and like, save twenty percent. Yeah, feed your family. I know margins, and that's a good margin. Uh huh. Um, also, this podcast is sponsored by Hardhead Veterans. Look, a Navy SEAL veteran started a company, and he wanted to make an alternative to ballistic helmets and do it better. And so he made a ballistic helmet. He has the ATE HHV, which is Hardhead Veterans Ballistic Helmet. It's a three alpha. Uh, it's got the above the ear cut. Look, if you're looking for ballistic wear or ballistic equipment, these things are rifle rated up armor. Yes. I mean, seven sixty by thirty nine. Uh, we're talking 2,400 feet per second front impact, uh, no penetration, 5.56 five, by 45, M855, 62 grain, no penetration, front impact with at 3,000 feet per second that Reynolds tra- traveling. Again, no penetration. That's what he said. The average helmet can stop pistol rounds, but as you know, officers have to face rifle threats as well. Until now, there hasn't been a good solution to this problem. The current helmet that you wear should stop rifle threats. And if it doesn't, Check out hardheadveterans.com and use the word Philcraft to save $15 off 
a minimum purchase of $100. That's 15%. Yeah. I don't know if you do that math. But hardheadveterans.com. And their their helmets are light and they're comfortable. Yeah, we, we actually have, we have a couple uh, so. some of their Ops Core versions of them, and they're super light, super comfortable. In fact, uh, I have one that I'm probably going to auction on December 14th for our toy drive, yes. which is going to be amazing. That's all our sponsors. That's it. Wow, that was really efficient and fast. It was. You know what I like about our, our ads versus other ads? Is we just don't try to sell it because we don't say it. We actually yeah. live it. And we use it. That's why we, we use yeah. it. I'm not like here. I'm not lying to you people. Yeah. I'm being like honest. So you're going to take this chicken a la king and you're going to pour this kill cliff into it. Yeah. You're going to mix it up and just let it sit. And you're going to let it set and you're going to eat it. Yeah. While you're wearing your hard headed veterans hat. I have the Irish pub cheddar potato soup. So I like that. That's, that looks, it's so good. I'm so happy so I got more. Um, why have you gained 15 pounds since we had a sponsorship <laughs> from Valley Food Storage? Um, hey, I had the opportunity to catch up with uh, Command Sergeant Major Retired Tom Satterley. Look, man, I, I've interviewed a lot of people, um, but to interview a man who I highly respected in special operations and still do that served in Mogadishu, Somalia as an operator in a special missions unit who served his entire career. It, he got recruited to serve in a special missions unit in the Q course. Damn. Um, he went to uh, German Ranger School. Hmm. He served in the global war on terror at the highest levels of tactically operating for reals um, and has done it all, man. He's done everything. But what's fascinating is about his story isn't just that. It's the full circle, circle of life, which mm-hmm. is uh, he experienced post-traumatic stress. He came out of that bad situation got himself on his feet, and he did something about it. Uh, and now he has an all-secure, the all-secure foundation that he started with his uh, beautiful and lovely wife, uh, Jen Satterley, who has been his rock along the way. Uh, super impressive story, super amazing time to uh, catch up with a, a, an operator in special operations and, and hear his story, his actual story. Now, we're not talking about like the the operating side of the story, but we're talking about the entire life story of Command Sergeant Major retired Tom Satterley. So here we go. Tom, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Oh, my pleasure, man. I really appreciate you having me on here. I know you're, uh, you're, you've been busy with this uh, book launch and everything. How, how's that experience been with uh, everything that's been going into the book? You know, it's been a whirlwind. Uh, writing it was difficult. That took longer than I thought. You know, you kind of enter into something. You're like, yeah, I'm going to knock this out. We'll be done with it in no time. <laughs> um, you know, well, my book will be released Memorial Day. And then that came and went. And, uh, yeah, we pushed it to the end of the year. And it was, uh, you know, you do something, you want to do it right. And you read it and you read it and you read it. And you keep re- re- changing everything and moving things around, um, working with my co-author. So that was a great experience of, of learning. And it was a cathartic experience of getting my emotions out there to someone else, uh, uh, you know, a fifth party, if you will, because I've gone to counseling, I've talked, but to get it all out and have a uh, be interviewed about what I wanted to put in a book was disturbing and helpful at the same time. And then roll that into I read the audio version in a studio, which was even more cathartic for me to speak those words out loud and, and to break down while reading these chapters and, you know, um, shocking myself along the way that, wow, I'm, I'm emotional now in parts that I was never emotional, you know, before. So 
reading that whole version for the audio um, was was an experience as well. I thought that, well, that'll take a couple of hours, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no, they're, by the way, they're like, redo that chapter or you hear your stomach growling in the microphone, which, you know, <laughs> you've never heard before. And I'm like, okay, I got to read that over. Um, so that took a couple of weeks just to get that out. And then um, to see it on the shelves and then have people start to pick up on it and reach out and to have that book um, it's doing what I wanted it to do is kind of surprising that it's happening so fast. So it's, it's exciting and scary because it's kind of like, was I ready for this? <laughs> I mean, we, we are, but you know how you think things trickle in and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, my, all my private messaging, my texts and my emails are filling up with people who love the book. I could barely read it without crying a hundred times. And Oh, by the way, me too. And how do I get help? Which is, exactly the reason we did the book so it's uh i'm happy i'm happy about it and excited and i just hope that it reaches more and more and more as we go that's amazing man and and you know what i want to start you know i have the opportunity here and i'm pretty excited um as as somebody who knew you on active duty um served in similar units to you in special operations and knew you even our in, in our community to be somebody who was above and beyond you know, you were the guy who everybody was like, "Whoa, that's 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 Tom Satterley. That's he's a different breed of guy." Which is, you know, people don't understand even in our um, community of special operations, there is a hierarchy amongst ourselves of people who have gone above and beyond. And I remember hearing your name and then meeting you and then uh, interacting, and it was like, "Oh, he was the guy who was in Black Hawk Down." I mean, that was you know, my generation understood Somalia you know, after the fact, because of Bowden's book, because of the movie, and then to see actual human beings and experience, um, you know, those guys training and operationally being involved was, was, uh, um, was pretty amazing. I mean, it was a, a huge, a huge part of my life and my career, thinking back on it, that you guys and guys like Tom Spooner and, and you guys just had a significant impact on the regiment, even when you were in on active duty and, you know, to, to actually get the opportunity to talk to you on the podcast and have people listen to you and your experiences um, is pretty uh, important for me to highlight uh, because I want people to learn from you just as much as I have uh, in my experiences with you. Uh, let's start from the beginning, Tom, because a lot of people aren't going to understand the context of even who you are, this book and everything else. So I kind of want to start from the beginning. Uh, when you came into the military, uh, what, what your upbringing was like, uh, and then what were your initial experiences leading up to the to the part in which uh, you became uh, a unit member in uh, in Delta? Um, and if you could bring it, walk us through that, I think that's important to lay the context of of your your story. Yeah, for sure. I don't have that that typical, exciting, well planned out uh, path that some people expect, and. Uh, I get a lot like how oh, you planned your future and you made it, you know, and, and how do you feel about it? I'm like, man, I stumbled onto everything I ever, ever did. It was, uh, I was partying in college. My parents were paying for it and I blew through all their money. And meanwhile, one of my best friends growing up had joined the army. And, uh, that summer he had come back. He, he just returned from uh, basic and AIT back to Indiana. And I grew up in small town, Indiana. I mean, I was born in Edinburgh, Indiana, grew up in Seymour, Indiana, which most people don't even know about. And, uh, you know, and I finally eventually moved to small town Columbus, Indiana, which is just south of Indianapolis. So 
I was not exposed to the military other than Camp Atterbury was nearby, you know, and it was Camp Atterbury back in the day when it was just old dilapidated barracks. We used to go run around and sneak around and, and play war. Um, and we were driving to a John Cougar concert on our way to Indianapolis, about an hour drive. And he's telling me all about the army and how great it is. And it sounds like a recruiting video. And by the time we got to Indy, I was sold and had decided to join. And my parents, you know, they had no clue. And uh, I didn't even have a clue until, by the, you know, until we got to Indy. And so he took me to a MEP station and I went in and just kind of picked. I was going to go to the medical field. I was going to be a medic. And uh, of course, the recruiter has a different idea. You know, he's got those goals he needs to meet. And he talked, <laughs> in, talked me into, uh, you want to blow things up and build things? And I'm like, that sounds exciting. So he's like, you need to be a combat engineer. So I joined the Army to be a combat engineer and and was whisked away to Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. And then I, I ended up spending three years in Germany. And I thought, well, I got one more. I'm going to get out, you know, soon. So get my college money and go back to college. But our platoon sergeant was a Hungarian, a former Hungarian sergeant. And he, he approached things differently than the Vietnam platoon sergeants mm-hmm. that we had at that time. They were kind of burnt out and I get it now, but he was more motivated, energetic. And he took us to some special operations courses um, French commando school. He took us to platoon confidence training in Bad Tolts, Germany with SF guys down there. And then the Swiss March, which was 40 mile hike, you know, through the Alps. And then um, they did a competition at Vilflicken for German Ranger School. They had one slot and hundreds of people showed up. And and there was an officer actually in headquarters in the battalion that was going to take the slot. And I raised a stink like, why? Why does he just get to take the slot? He works in headquarters. What what's he do? You know, who is who is he? How's that? How's that going to pay back to the military? And, and uh, they they agreed with it. And they they ran this competition. It was a two day competition and a, a green beret that had just PCS to our, our unit for some reason. And I look back now and I wonder why we had a green beret come to our unit. But <laughs> back then I didn't know. He just looked really cool. And he, they had him set up a two day competition that I won. So I got to go to German Ranger School, and that's when I adopted one of my best friends um dreams he had shown me pictures of his dad holding him as a baby wearing his dad's green beret and his dad was in vietnam and i I thought man that's really cool and that was his dream his entire life and that's when i kind of adopted his dream i'm like i want to go special operations i want to i want to do something cool like that so i I tried to re-enlist um under the bear program and i i didn't get i didn't have pldc i was already knee five and I, i got it without having pldc yet and so they wouldn't let me re-enlist under the bear program. So I just re-enlisted for uh, airborne school just to get to Fort Bragg so I could get to a uh, recruitment for SF. And that's when I went down I got to Fort Bragg with the 27th engineer battalion and then walked my happy butt down to the uh, Green Beret recruiting building and uh, signed up for SFAS at the end of that summer. And that's kind of what started that path. Uh, SFAS went fine. The Q course was a breeze because I was already an engineer and I, I went as a special operations engineer sergeant. So I had all that down. Um, I was in shape. So that was easy. And then made that. And I'd met some people from the unit, Mike Rampy and John Macionis. They were in the Q course with me and I didn't know where they were from. And uh, I was in language school and Mike Rampy approached me and he said, hey, we're watching you during the Q course. We think you have what it takes. You want to try out for the unit? I'm like, yeah, uh, sure. What is that? Uh, Sounds cool. (laughs) Let's do do that. You know, (laughs) 
And he's like, call this number. They're, they're waiting on you. And I'm like, okay, well, when class is out, you know, he said, no, no, call it right now. So I called him and the recruiter's like, okay, I'm going to give you a PT test on Wednesday. Blah. I'm like, uh, all right, <laughs> this is squared away. And you're in the Q course. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in language school after the Q course. And they, they showed up down there and gave me a PT test, uh, right before lunch one day. And, uh, Got the packet. I did my paperwork and all, you know, the deal with that and sent it in and got accepted. Meanwhile, I get shipped off to uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And everybody in fifth group is deployed for the first Gulf War. Mm. Everybody except the broken and, and the injured and the weak or whatever. And they're all back running the battalions. I got assigned a second battalion, fifth special forces group. And I was the sergeant major as an E5. You know, I'm running around with nothing to do because I'm non-deployable because I have a selection date. And so I'm upset a little bit. I'm excited a little bit, but I have plenty of time to train, you know, with no one around. Mm -hmm. So that takes me all the way to selection. Uh, I want to say I breezed through selection now that it's over. (laughs) (laughs) But you know the deal with selections. They suck. They suck. And when they're over, you're like, well, that wasn't so bad. But um, made that, went to OTC. And, uh, man, you know, I never looked back. It was – when I joined, I was like, you know, four years in and out and I blinked. And then 25 years later, I'm, I'm finally getting out of the army, uh, beat down and broken. But, you know, I, I couldn't, I never had a plan. It was just, that looks cool. That looks cool. That was cool. Let's go do that and try that. Um, and the biggest memory I have out of all that was the fear I had before every selection started, you know, literally physically sick to my stomach the night before. I'm to report in for something or to fly to West Virginia or whatever. Um, emotionally devastated of the fear that I would fail. You know, mm-hmm. I had made all these other schools all along the way, always graduating top of the class, doing well, but I never, ever thought I was good enough to be where I was all the way up to even in the unit. Never, never thought I was good enough to be there. So it's funny you're saying, oh, you're, you know, you were one of those leaders. We heard about you. I never felt good enough to be in that place. Mm. Always felt like a fraud and always felt like someone was going to come take my job any day, you know? Yeah, I remember uh, General Miller. Uh, well, he, at the time, it was a colonel who's the unit commander, and he came in and talked to us. And he said, um, every time I come into the compound and the gate opens, um, I always feel like that I'm going to get rejected at the gate. And that that card's not going to let me get in. And somehow they're going to find out that the, it's a farce. And I'm like, wow, and, and look how successful he's been. And it's, it's, what's interesting is I, I think that's the mindset that a lot of guys have in special operations, that they're not where they uh, should be, that they don't deserve to be there. Um, and, and that's like a, maybe a hallmark of a special operations guy. Where, where do you think that mindset uh, comes from or stems from in your life with your experiences. Um, and then to talk about the physical p- portion of that, because you, you to be able to breeze through SFAS and West Virginia and everything else um, is not normal. And did you, were you bred for it? Were you an athlete? And, you know, talk to us about that as well. You know, when I do, I do public speaking. And when I do that, I, I tell the story often about sitting in a bunker in Balad talking to, people like Jody Nacy and General Miller and, and all these greats, um, General McChrystal, sitting around a room talking about how, oh, you were a badass. No, you were the badass. No, no, no. You were a badass. We all figured out that we all thought that other people were badasses. And we, it, to a man, everyone in that room felt 
not good enough to be there. And we told that same story about every day swiping at the gate or you go in the door and it turns green. You're like, Oh, thank God. You know, my badge still works. Um, and it's, I think everybody goes through that. And that's where that the greatest failure is a failure to try comes in for me is that we're all going to fail. Right. So if you let, if you let the possibility of failure stop you from even trying, mm. then that's the biggest failure ever in life. So Everybody, even though it devastates you to always feel not good enough, we use it as a tool to do better and to be better and to try to be on top and to try to be better than the person to your left and right. Not not for any kind of narcissism or or that, you know, I'm just going to be the best and it's good competition. But it was so you could. Assist those to your left and right better because you thought they were better. You were always striving to be as good as them. Mm -hmm. You know, so you could so you could keep up with them and never let them down. It wasn't I'm going to be better than you and I'm going to show you. I mean, I think it is for some people, but for me, it never was. For me, it was I'm not good enough. I'm going to continue to work until I can keep up with you, hang with you, show you the way, be a good leader and be a good teacher and and, uh, and raise people the proper way in that unit. And. And I'll tell you, it is devastating mentally. And physically, because you never stop. I probably worked out five or six, seven times a day. Uh, I'd ride my bike to work, you know, depending on where I lived in my 20 years in the unit was it could be seven miles to 15 miles. You know, it, it didn't matter. It was just what I did and ride my bike to work. And then when I got there, I'd work out. And then I then I then I'd rinse off and go do some shooting before breakfast. And then I'd eat breakfast and then we'd go do shooting until workout time. And then, you know, and then lunch and then back to CQB or shooting or whatever it is you were doing that day and then back to working out and then ride my bike home. And then when I was home, I'd always do something at the end of the day and then, and then go to bed for like three hours and wake up and do it again. And that was normal. Mm -hmm. and, and you'd get to work and there'd be people there already. And every day I'm like, dang it, I want to be the first person to work. <laughs> I want to be every single body to work today and I'll be in the gym. I'll be first and I'll turn the lights on, you know, and it was just every day was a competition to, to do more than the other person that you see there so you can be better so you can assist them better and it it took its toll and i remember the day physically it took its toll it was embarrassing for me i was you know those young guys are coming up on your heels they're doing better they're studs and uh and you know it you know i'm a team leader at the time and i'm thinking man i got more paperwork to do i'm not out with the guys every day i'm doing less pt and then you have a star major day and you know, you got somebody that's trying to take a, a sledgehammer out of, out of the back of your ruck because you're slowing down. And I'm like, get the get away from me. You know, get the fuck away from me. Don't touch this <laughs> shit. You know, and, uh, and, I'm, and, and finally, it's like I relent like, OK, all right, I'm holding the team back. This is not team play. And I allow it to happen. And it broke me mentally even more mm -hmm. to allow somebody, a younger person on the team, take some weight off of me. So I could sprint to the finish and, you know, finish second place. And it's like, Jesus Christ, this is killing me. Mm. Um, you know, never mind the back surgeries and everything else. You, you, you throw that away. Like I'm, I'm up, I'm ready to roll and I'm going to have to be the best again. And that destroyed me, the physical part. Mentally, I think it caught up with me after retirement when I no longer had a tribe or, or I know I no longer felt connected to what mm. made me who I was at least then. And, um, I crashed after, you know, a year and a half after retirement, I, I hit rock bottom of, well, I started at rock bottom and I tried to dig deeper for a while that, uh, 
that, that emotionally and mentally it took its toll when everything ceased, you know, there was no more competition. There was no more hitting the gym. It was just, I'm here. It's me and no one else. My family's at work. My kids at school. I'm sitting in my bed all day sleeping with nothing to do anymore. And that's when I became really lost. Mm. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, talk about some of the precursors um, before we talk about the transition, because when you transition into the unit, the, you hadn't gone to war prior to going into the unit. So your first experience as a young man uh, was with the unit at war in Mogadishu, Somalia, correct? Yeah, it was. I was in a unit um, uh, two years, just over two years. Um, not even two years for, out of OTC yet. So, you know, you're talking arrival to the unit just over two years from that. So six months. So you're looking at a year and a half. I'm in the unit and then boom, we go to Somalia and I'm thinking, all right, I get to test my metal finally hmm. because I was always either on leave, my unit deployed or Panama and I was somewhere else or, you know, fifth group, but I'm, I'm not deployable. So I'm feeling like a failure, like I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, when Somalia popped up, I was like, this is awesome. I was excited. I was, you know, when you're young and you have no clue what's what to expect, you're just you're just happy to be able to do your job. And the first five or six missions were were exactly what I thought combat would be. You know, it's what they show you on TV. You go out, maybe somebody shoots at you, shoot back. You know, some bad guys are killed. Um, maybe somebody gets wounded, but nobody gets killed. And everybody's home and high-fiving and telling crazy stories about, um, you know, that night. Here's that mission we did and high-fiving and talking about it. But October 3rd pops around and uh, everything changes. You know, I'm... The start of the mission was just the same. I mean, it was different with the volume of fire, but again, it's what you expect. Lots of lots of gunfire. Good guys are running around doing their thing, and then, um, you know, and then somebody gets shot in the face, and then a helicopter gets shot down, and then a five ton gets blown up, and then somebody gets shot in the neck, and then you're you're running down the street to you know the first crash site, lining up on both sides of the street, fighting your entire way through with. I say thousands. There's no way to even put a number to it of people on on paralleling streets, you know, north and south of you as you head east, trying to beat you to the crash site and shooting at you along the way every time you you know pass an intersection. And I was still motivated, still invincible, wearing our plastic skateboard helmets, and you know my Kevlar was so small I handmade it and it just fit my body perfectly. You know, I went to the sew shop, made all my own Kevlar as small as I possibly could. So I could be fast and agile. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I jump out in the middle of the street and I'm shooting at somebody that's down by the crash site. And I look across the street and Earl Fillmore's doing the same thing. And then I look, I, you know, I look back down the street and I look back and they're dragging Earl away. And I, it was that quick. It was less than a couple of seconds and, and Earl's being drugged. And I'm thinking, Oh, I hope he's okay. You know, mm -hmm. wow. I, you know, he wasn't moving, but I didn't notice that at the time. Is you know, that and then finally, What's that? Is that the first indicator that I mean? I mean, you feel this feeling of invincibility, and then um, things start to obviously catastrophically compound themselves over time because of the situation you guys were in. Was there was that the indicator, or was there an indicator that you weren't invincible? That things potentially were getting a little bit more dangerous than you expected personally. Did you it, feel it personal was. danger? That was a switch. Hmm. You know, that was the flip of the switch right there. Um, I'd seen a ranger get shot in the neck, leaning up against the metal gate in a courtyard we were in. And it, that was weird, but it wasn't a unit guy. It was still 
a bit removed, if, if you will, even though we're together, mm-hmm. there's always that invincibility of the unit of, of we're so highly trained and we're good. And, oh, you got shot in the neck because maybe, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's a weird feeling. But when, when I saw him dragging Earl away, that was the first unit member that I had seen. And he was limp and, you know, it probably registered that he wasn't moving, but I, I shook it off and I got back to work. And that muscle memory kicks in and you just do your job. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember fear in my stomach, you know, that, that, that those butterflies, I'm going to vomit feeling of I'm going to go on stage and do a speech in front of 500 people. You know, <laughs> yep. it, it just hit me. And I, I look back and I, I got back, I got back into action and just, we pushed down the street and, uh, I didn't think about that incident anymore, but they kept piling on top with, you know, the Rangers getting wounded and blown up the house being torn down by RPGs. And then the fact that I knew we couldn't get out and we were running out of ammunition throughout the night, no water, no food. And I had that feeling of I'm I'm trapped. I want to go home and I can't. So I'm no longer in control of the situation. And I, I think that's when it all came together that, we don't control every situation in life. So this is where we find out how we operate when someone else is controlling your life, you know, Um, the outcome possibly. And I, and at some point that night I had relented to the fact that I wasn't going to make it. And that my sole purpose in life now was to take out as many people as I could and save as many of my brothers as possible. And I think that was the very start of, of PTS for me. Mm-hmm. though I wouldn't know it for another 20, you know, 20 years, I guess, 20, 20, 23 more years later when it would all hit me that I look back now that I, I have more information on it, but I'm assuming that that is the moment. If there ever is a defining moment that I had given up on life and that everything I thought about in the world, it changed because I, I, I understood the reality of life and death now. Wow. Yeah. So it's almost like, you identified that there's a primal existence and you're just surviving. And now you you awaken to that. And I imagine that after this was over with, after the firefight was over with, that you guys didn't have a lot of time to mourn. I mean, the, the unit was very active. Um, and then obviously leading up to the global war on terror, you're just going from deployment to the deployment. I'm a, I'm assuming that you didn't have a lot of time to do anything for yourself when it came to mourning or figuring things out. You just had to get back to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, the deal, man, you, you hit back, you know, you're on a, you get a, maybe a couple of weeks off, maybe, you know, after you clean your gear and turn it in. And then those couple of weeks last about five days and then you're back at work, working out, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to fall behind and, Next thing you know, you just go back to work early, even though you're on leave. <laughs> and then, you, mm-hmm. and then you're supposed to be at work, and now you're traveling around the world training, and then you're going around the world doing missions. You know, oh, by the way, we're going to go to war soon, so let's do that. While we're still doing everything we've done in the past, so there's never a stopping moment. There's never time to consider or mourn. Um, we went to one funeral, and that was Matt Ryerson's. Everyone else was buried while we were still overseas. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, once a year we get together and get drunk and, but that was it. It was, you know, it was uh move on the next thing. And you can't, you can't sit and, and waller in your misery is, is kind of the way I looked at it. So never really processed all of that. And then you roll into 20 more years of war. Um, 
oh, by the way, now I'm in charge of people, which for me made it worse um, personally. You know, if I get myself killed, okay, well, there's my punishment, you know. Um, but if I get someone else killed, that's that's worse for me for the rest of my life to consider that and to consider the people that that affected. So all my decisions were, you know, they took more of a toll on me, I think. Um, everything I did, I was always begging and praying that, you know, we, when we went out that gate, that I would make all the right decisions. Not that I would live, but that I would make all the right decisions that would bring my men home. And, you know, in Somalia, I'm running around as, as a kid and I'm a youngie five breaking things and shooting people. That was my job, you know, and, and now I'm in charge of people that are breaking things and shooting people. And I, there's so much more to consider and worry about that it really started piling on top. Yeah, I remember I, I had a we did a podcast with Chuck Pressburg and he he had mentioned the same thing with his experiences with Roberts Ridge, where for the first time as a leader, you know, an E seven, a platoon sergeant at the time, where he had he felt helpless. You know, his guys were killed on that ridge line and he had no way of protecting them. And then circling back to, you know, unit time and then trying to um just be a nug because he didn't want to be in charge. And then getting to a point where you're in a leadership position again at, at that level of expertise and operating, it's like, man, you have a lot of burden of responsibility. Did you, leading into the GWAT, um, it, it's almost like a surge, obviously, of operations. And I, I remember how active the unit was. Uh, do you, like, talk us through the experiences through the GWAT, because you, you were super active and you had a lot of things that were going on and you were working through team leader positions, troop sergeant major positions. Um, were there any instant instances that you remember that were similar to your experiences in Mogadishu that, uh, you know, you, at, not at the time, but later on reflecting on that impacted your, your, uh, your mental health? Yeah, there were two hits. One of them was a Halloween night hit in Fallujah or Ramadi. Um, you know what? One of those cities they are both amazing cities. Um, <laughs> And uh, we were doing a hit, and it was on a, you know, suspected uh, VBID maker, and, you know, stored explosives. And we we linked up with, I think it was the 101st at their base, and before we rolled in, they were doing external security, where the Rangers with us is always doing, you know, more internal security. And then we were going to hit a couple of houses, and we did it with the Brits, too. Um, it was Operation Abalone. And they had made some changes and some intel changes had come through on our way out. But I was busy dealing with my troop commander wanting to change the plan and wanting to do it his way, even though I'd already told him, no, the team leaders make the plan. And if it's tactically sound, I accept it. You know, they're the ones going in the door. And he changed the plan on the hood of the vehicle in front of all these 101st commanders. So, you know, I wasn't going to get into one of those fights with him. And it wasn't going to get anybody killed because it, tactically it was still sound. So we ended up changing uh, the house we hit. And the Brits pulled up in front of what ended up being the target building, which we wouldn't know to the end. And we conduct the hit house after house after house. We find nothing. So we're going to pull back out and exfil. And the Brits go back to load up on their vehicles. Um, we're across the street, caddy corner. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to some people we detained. And they, the Brits decided to go in one more house, the house right by their vehicles. And they opened the gate and the, and the, the foreign fighters opened. That was our first experience with foreign fighters. Foreign fighters opened up with RPK fire at the gate, killed one Brit instantly, wounding another, and they had to drag him out of the way. They couldn't get their vehicles out of there. They were pinned down in front of a house full of about 20 or more 
more uh, foreign fighters just hiding the whole time, waiting, getting their weapons ready, their RPGs laid up on the roof, waiting to attack us as we came back. Wow. And uh, it became chaotic very fast. The radio just lit up. I've got these these armored vehicles, two tanks, two brads. I pull them up out front. And, you know, I got people with helos trying to come in and exfil the wounded. The Brits just took off with the wounded in their pinkies and just drove on back to Ramadi at the base there. Didn't let me know. <laughs> so all this chaos just ensued within a five minute period and i'm trying to get track of everybody the radio's crackling with people that want to shoot rockets at this house across the street and i'm thinking you know what no i don't think so because we're right across the street by the way you know you want to launch a rocket from 30 miles away i don't think so i just don't feel that good about it um they came in with some little birds and i found out that my boss was calling for fire you know so i'm over here managing these bradleys to tear down this this wall in front of this house so we don't go through the gate you know, use your 40 mile, use your guns and just knock that wall down, blow it down. And uh, everybody's shooting at the house. He's calling for fire. And I told him, I said, you know, we got a fire support officer. You need to do your job so I can do my job and let him do his job. You know, he's mm-hmm. just super excited. And then it's time to go in the house and wrap it up. And uh, again, that's my job. And I, I grab two of the teams. I'm like, let's go finish off this house. He's like, I'm going in with you. And I said, well, we're running this assault. You have to stay out here on the roof, you know, take commands, spread it, spread orders. I'm going in that house. I'm like, all right, well, go on in the house. I'm going to the roof, you know, running that, bringing in a Kazavak who comes in and he's empty, by the way, because the Brits took off. So I'm trying to get accountability, trying to figure out where everyone's at. We got guys climbing over the roof of the house next door, trying to get into this house. And there's foreign fighters on the roof still. The Brits are out back, you know, catching the squirters who are trying to jump out the window. And there's just whole chaos that I had to manage the whole way. And um, basically, when we got back after that, I had uh, talked to the commander, Sergeant Major on the front porch. I said, listen, this is it's either him or me. You know, this is not working. This has happened before. It happened before in Afghanistan. You know, basically, the commander's like, send him on out. You know, so they had to. He came back and packed his bags. He was gone 20 minutes later. Um, Wow. And I ended up running the rest of the time without a dedicated troop commander you know they gave me a good one the ops officer you know stepped over and he was a great great officer um that one was chaotic that one was um the baptism for me of running the whole thing because my, my officer's out doing his own thing and having fun and uh and then there was another one towards the end uh, south of baghdad on the rat line for fallujah where we did a helo assault on what they called a wedding party, which we knew on info when they were shooting at us, it was not a wedding party. It was a bunch of terrorists at a training camp just south of town where it starts turning into desert. And uh, as we flew in, guys roped down and landed on the roof and, and a bird, a Black Hawk, was uh, lifting off and they took an RPG to um, the rotor blades. Mm-hmm. And I and I and from the field about 30 meters away where my my guys had infilled i could see it it wasn't going to lift off and make it and it did a hard landing maybe two three hundred meters away and at the end of the field and just sat down and so i had rangers everywhere i had squirters in between all the rangers and us and, and it was a chaos and i remember cringing as i got on the radio and had to call black hawk down that oh, man it took it all back from me um immediately it literally took me all back and we had no water i mean again here we are creating the same mistakes we did in somalia without extra water you know and i I had always said i'll never go without night vision which we had 
I'll never go with that extra water and I'll never go with that extra food and I'll kick it out of the bird. We'll leave it. If, if we don't use it, great, fine. You know, leave it for whoever. Didn't do it and ended up spending the whole night waiting for a dart team to come in, which was my first experience to a dart team. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, let's blow it in place. We're out of here in 10 minutes. And they're like, no, 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 we're sending a dart team. I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, you know, down to aircraft rescue team. I go, oh, that's a new one. All right, then. So had to wait for them to find some test pilots some parts fly in fly out fly in and finally limp that bird out of there later but we sat that entire night um i mean we had ac-130 so we quelled you know what was out there coming at us but the tanks didn't roll out to get us the qrf you know they were like hours out anyway so they stayed home so again another night with ammo you know no resupply i mean it wasn't as bad as somalia but i remember the thinking the similarities of you know, I just had a guy get blown up by a, a guy with a grenade in the house. I got, you know, enemy coming at us from all directions. I got squirters trying to leave the target, and I've got a downed helo, an AC-130. I can't use it until I get accountability of all my men. So that chaos uh, was was definitely one that took me straight back to Somalia. When you when you uh, when you decided that you were going to get out, did you know that you were going to get out? Did you set a retirement date? And then talk to us about the the lead up to that point, because I imagine maybe the op tempo started to reduce. And then I don't know if it's similar to my experience, but it just as I got closer to that date, the anxiety built up to that date because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Um, did you have did you experience any of that or was it abrupt in the, the time that you checked out? It was abrupt because I chose to ignore it. I was so anxious about getting out and not knowing what I would do that I chose to not even consider it. I uh, went about my day. I was doing LNO work at range 37. I was teaching CQB and shooting. And then they only had like four, four classes a year, I think at the time, maybe, you know, and uh, so there was a lot of downtime, but I was terrified of it. When I, when I was at 20, you know, when I'm at 19, they had that big bonus and I almost turned it down. I was, I was, I was ready to get out, but the money got me. And, I'll tell you what, the second I got that check and I realized I had six more years, I was devastated. I, oh, I, it's like I wanted to check out with my money. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, like, you guys owe me this money. I don't want to have to pay for it again. And I realized I had six more years and uh, there was a lot more to do. You know, and I ended up going, sitting in Balad and, 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 and working as the unit, the task force CSM over there, working under Jody Nacy and, and General McChrystal and and sitting in, in, in Balad watching all the people go out on all these hits on Kill TV thinking, man, I'm really just a desk jockey now, man. You know, it's, it's literally the, if I didn't exist, this war would go on without me. I'm not contributing really. Yeah. I mean, the position sure seems like it's important and it's a title and you get, you know, these con ops and you approve them. But would you ever turn one down? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. no, that's not tactically sound. I mean, you got a whole squadron of guys telling you what they want to do, who am I to turn it down? I mean, it's, I just made sure they had the support they needed. Um, the hardest part of that was, was casualty notification. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of, kind of my job for that. And it, it was horrible going, identifying people and then sending back information. And, you know, it was just, I hated it because I just sat in that chair. I worked out, I ate, you know, 20 hours a day. And then you go lay down for four hours and get up, get back up and do it again. But you're not exerting yourself. You're just sitting there answering emails and approving, and, 
you know, handing out, you know, assets to different people who are never happy, by the way, you got 10,000 people that want stuff from you and they're never happy. So it was like, wow, I've, I've, I've really graduated to this and I've got about six more years. Wow. And then all my surgeries started to catch up with me. all my injuries and the surgeries um, started catching up with me, which created more surgeries, which created more time at home. And, uh, you know, that's that slow, you're getting out of shape. You can't work out because you've got these surgeries and then you make excuses of why you can't work out. And then, and then it's, I'll work out tomorrow. And then it's, and then the depression sets in and then, then retirement came and I was like, Oh God, what am I going to do? You know, luckily 10 days after I retired, I got, well, five days after I retired, I got an email saying, Hey, there's a slot in Jordan. If you want to pack up and move to Jordan, you can help run ranges at, at Tassadic, you know, King Abdullah Special Operations Training Center. And I was like, yeah, cool. I'll do that. And it was a lot of money. I didn't do anything. And I packed up. And 10 days later, I was living in Amman, Jordan. Wow. So that lasted a short time. And then they put me in charge of a program training 100 Jordanian soldiers to be Special Forces qualified. So I ran them. I hired nine other SF people. And I, I was telling them, this is not my job. I was in Delta, man. This is an SF job. Yeah, but you were a green brag. Yeah, but you don't get it. I went to the Q course and then I was in Delta. That was it. I never did this job really. Like, yeah, but you're the man. Okay. So I hired nine more, you know, SF guys, basically, you know, almost an SF team minus the medics other than what I needed a medic for. Um, Cause you're never going to teach those guys, you know, first aid very well. And, uh, Ran three, you know, three month long programs, graduate 100 Jordanians, special force qualified, go home for two weeks, come back and prep for two weeks and start it all over again. And so I'm, I'm still in my tribe working with people, just not in combat. And that's when, you know, you start partying and now you're in charge and you're having a good time and you're working hard and playing hard and everything seems to be going fine. And then that job dried up and I ended up coming back home and I had nothing again. Yet I didn't look for anything. You know, I laid in bed all night watching TV. I'd sleep all day. I was eating junk food. And I mean, for four months, mm. I was miserable. I literally took a crash of, of, I have no tribe. I have no reason to live. I have no reason to be around. And I just told myself that every day, um, you know, and then you have suicide ideation coming in. Like, wow, I'm a problem. We've been trained to take out problems, right? Yeah. So when I'm the problem, and there's no other solution, then let's, let's go ahead and take ourselves out. You know? So yeah. I, I, I lived like that and I started doing contract work for certain people along the way and it was entertaining at best and, and fun. I love teaching, but it was always just the party and it was always just, you know, trying to look cool and be cool and fit that, that vision that everyone has of you. You know, oh, you're a hero. I hate that. You know, oh, thank you for your service. I'm like, oh, God, I just did my job, you know, and and everybody ex- holds you way up here uh-huh. and you think you're way down here, you know, and it's just there's no connecting in the middle with anyone. I couldn't I had zero empathy. I didn't care about anything. If you if you were down and out or you had a rough life, you earned it. You probably earned it. You know, yeah. You should have should have studied in high school longer. You should have instead of sitting on the corner smoking cigarettes, you should have went to class and done your homework. I was there was an excuse for everything. And I blamed everyone except myself for my problems. And then then one day it hit me. I was like, I'm the problem. I'm the constant, you know, and I can't fix everyone else. 
So if I start working on myself, I might be able to fix the problem, you know? Was, uh, was there a turning point? Was there a, a moment in time in which that light light bulb went off? You know, some of my friends uh, were killing themselves, you know, and uh, you start hearing certain stories. And I'm like, wow, really? Wow, I had no idea. And then. You know, the older operators, I kind of knew, but didn't know. And then and then it moved into operators that I did know. And then it moved into like my former team leader. And then I started thinking, man, you know, maybe maybe your job as a warrior is done. Right. Maybe there is no reason to be here on this earth anymore. If you follow that train of thought, or that path of existence, you know, maybe maybe my time here is up. I've done everything I can do for this country and society and it's time to go. And I, I nearly killed myself, um, about six years ago. And the person that intervened, it didn't know it. It showed me that it just took some small act of kindness, which led to so many more acts of kindness and help that I didn't realize it, that those people I used to put down and had zero empathy for, I realized that I was down at the bottom with them. And, when I reached up for help, somebody reached down and gave me a hand and pulled me out and helped me. I thought, wow, that's all it takes. That's literally all it takes is mm-hmm. to not say, Hey, what can I do? How can I help? Or, or I'd love to help your foundation or help veterans or, or to post shit, but actually stick your damn hand out there and have that tough conversation with somebody, you know, saves lives. And I realized that it doesn't take much to make somebody feel good about themselves, you know, or to not feel so bad about themselves that they want to go on even more. Let me, so we decided to turn that into a job, you know, let's do that. Let's make this a job and help as many people as we can. When, when you are on active duty and then you're transitioning and you're going through the ACAP process, which includes mental health and physical health uh, evaluations. Did, do you, did you see any light at the end of the tunnel as far as, fixing a problem or did you not identify a problem at that timeline? Cause I'm interested in your take on this because I'm, I'm helping, you know, Kevin Owens, I'm helping Kevin Owens go through his retirement process now. And, 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 you know, Kevin's going through all the, the paperwork and everything. And I'm wondering if now, or even when you retired or when I got out, if things have changed for the better when it comes to like helping soldiers while they're still in, with any potential issues they're having. I haven't heard a specific story yet that indicates that they're doing better. Mm. Um, they're talking about it and they know something's up and they got to do something, but that's just the start. It's going to take a time. It's going to take time before everyone gets on board. Or they decide what they're going to do. I know when I got out, I don't remember any mental health. I, I ended up in Jordan, you know, and like I said, in 10 days. So I never had a physical for my VA. I kept writing the VA. I'm in Jordan. Do I need to go to the embassy? How are we going to do this? I'm, I'm, I'm only home for two weeks at a time, you know, every three months. And then I have two weeks and I'm back. And I have two weeks and I'm back. That's my life. And they're like, well, okay, here, you know, well, here's 10% for, you know, arthritis. Wow. They, they gave me a rating. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I've had like eight surgeries and everything hurts. And they're like, well, you didn't never got a physical. I said, you never gave me one. You never gave me a date. You know, so I had to fight that and fight that. And I said, look, I'm coming home between this date and this date. Schedule me a physical anywhere you want. I'll drive there. You know, I'll be in Fort Bragg. I'll drive anywhere you want. And about four days before I was to go back to Jordan, I got an email 
with some some appointment dates that were five days after me leaving. And I, and I wrote back, I said, yep, we missed it again. Sorry, I, I can't make these dates. So they wrote back right away and said, look, can you make tomorrow? Can you do this and that? So I ended up driving down south to Lillington, all these, you know, uh, all these uh, scans and x-rays. And then I had to go up north to Raleigh somewhere to speak to a mental health professional who who denied me PTSD because of the four questions she asked me. One of them was, would you go back? And I said, well, would I go back if I asked? Well, yeah, I go, OK, because I wouldn't I don't want to go back. But I would go back mm-hmm. because that's my job and it was always my job and I would never not do what I've been trained to do. Mm-hmm. But so you'll go back. I go, yeah, I, I'd go back if they asked me to go back. I'd go back and do my job because it's needed. You know, if they're asking me, obviously, it's needed. I'm never going to turn that down, but I don't want to go back. Well, you know, along with do you have nightmares, daydreams, and do you think about this and that? Yes, yes, yes. And oh, by the way, yes, I'd go back. So she denied me PTSD. She said nobody with PTSD would ever go back. She goes, you special forces guys are so crazy. And I go, it's not crazy. It's training. Yeah. I don't think that just because somebody would go to war doesn't mean they don't have PTSD. You know, I, 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 I'm pretty I look back now, you know, had I known in that interview, I would have said I went to war with PTSD since 93. I've had it. And it's only gotten worse. And I keep going to war, you know, so it doesn't mean I don't have it. You know, if I had the flu, I'd still go to war. And so they denied it. And I went out and uh, but I ended up getting 220 percent disability in, in total, you know, 100 percent service connected. Finally, after all of my injuries, everything that they tried to get me to do and I couldn't do. And so I tell everybody the ACAP process wasn't the greatest um, a lot of it was because I blew a lot of stuff off, right? Go to this class. I'm like, well, that's a stupid class or go to this resume writing class. I'm like, well, okay, I'll go sign in and then leave, you know, I'll go to the bathroom and never go back. Um, I did that to myself, but I think that, well, there definitely was no mental health. There was no mental health in that. And there was nothing other than here's how to write a resume. Here's how to do your VA appointment claim everything right raise your hands now's not the time to be who i remember that you know you go in there and you tell them all about this and i remember thinking i'm not going to go in there and complain you know Mm -hmm. i'm not going to go in there and tell this doctor everything sucks in life i chose it but they don't help with that and i know that they're starting to talk about incorporating it but the process is so skewed that you'd have to teach all of those therapists all of those people that help with ACAP and getting out, what to look for, right? And decide what it is you're looking for to approve somebody for something. Yeah. The, I'm, I'm interested in what you mentioned before about um, your take kind of on trauma as you recognize it because you learn later, like the the things that were uh, that you didn't recognize as, as uh, PTS, but then after talking to people about it, you realize like the, some of the things that you were doing or experiencing were obviously leading to trauma um, and how that affected your personal life. Cause uh, I, I read your bio and, and um, you know, I didn't want to get too personal without asking you first, but I know you had um, some personal relationships fall apart. Now when you run in parallel lives as a, as a um, you know, a husband or a father or whatever it may be with the military, especially in special operations, people don't understand that those are two different things entirely. 
and the crossover of those things could lead to to negative outcomes. Did you were you able to keep your family intact, or were you having personal issues along the way as you experienced the, these things? Now, my whole career was wrought with personal issues, and I ignored them. Um, I tell people this: you watch movies, you, you study in history. You know, you have you have every warrior. You know, you've got you've got the three hundred. Right. They all had women. They all had booze, the Vikings, the warriors. It's all women and all booze. It's the warrior mindset that I think you and this is Tom's take on it. I think you get the godlike complex. It's a culture that has been well established over over a long period of time, hanging out with your mates. You're going to die with them. You know, you're going to fight with them. You're going to drink with them. You're going to chase women with them. And then you're going to go home to your spouses and hang out with your children and, and do the minimum because we're not good at that. We're not good at going home. Um, we want to do our jobs and, and, and we take the easy route. And so I spent a lot of time um, in that world of, of if you had to, you know, it's mere work. It was always work. You know, uh, my, my first wife left me because after Somalia, I became a complete and utter train wreck. So we had been together eight, eight to 10 years and we didn't make it past, uh, Somalia, probably two years. Uh, just, I was different. I was dedicated to my job and I was unemotional, unattached. And I had zero emotions at home as well. You know, my second marriage was a quick, whatever I'm used to being married. I'm going to get married. And, you know, it was one of those, one of those where I don't even know why I got married. I just did. And two years later, you know, she's having an affair because I'm always gone anyway. And I was like, it didn't bother me. I didn't care. All right, later. Get out. You know, kicked her out. Uh, third marriage was real tough on me because I got closer and then my wife was pregnant and then we had a son. And so children definitely always make it more difficult. And I ended up, you know, I'm ignoring my family, which means I'm ignoring my son, you know, and I, I say ignoring. I'm doing my job. But. Again, it was a choice, wasn't it? I tell you, it's a choice. And we always try to tell ourselves why it's okay. You know, it's been done this way forever or the other guys are doing it or everyone's doing it. So it's okay. You know, and I'm out running around having a good time and working my butt off. And uh, after retirement, when I packed up and moved to Jordan, I mean, what's what's my wife going to do? I'm home two weeks every three months. You know, I'm, I'm still in the military. I'm still never home. My son doesn't know me. My wife doesn't know me. And I'm, I'm living a whole separate life. And along with everybody that's working with me, you know, so here I am normal. My new normal is women, booze, work hard, you know, be the best of what you can be. And nothing affects you. You have no feelings, you know, other than I want to have fun. So, yeah, when you wake up to that that that's not the way the world is it's it's devastating it's completely and utter, utterly devastating that that my family life was put on the not even the back burner i threw it away for my job and it's not just strictly the military if you think of ceos businessmen that that have a quota and they they have to make so many sales and they they have this big house and they were doing great but they have to keep working to to afford everything they have so the stress of always being gone, you know, CEOs, the stress of, of running a, a large company and firing people, you know, you're not taking lives and your life's not, not in danger, but still it's the stressful situations of, of life on the job. 
you know, pro pro athletes the same way. You operate at a high level like that and it takes its toll. Something's got to give and it's typically the family life. I noticed that in special operations, that's like, I mean, you described your your story in that sense with your personal life is the story um, that is most likely in the majority in special operations. And what I tell guys as, you know, we're talking about transition uh, from military to civilian, that the, the civilian life or uh, the actual reality of real life because, you know, living in a connex shipping container operating out of a small base in the middle of a foreign country isn't real life. And then when you actually have to come back to that, it's um, a whole new set of parameters and considerations, and it's something that we're not prepared for. And when you transitioned from the military to civilian life and actually became a civilian, like you're trying to – you're not contracting, you're just doing um, what civilians do – how difficult was that for you? And then what were some means for you to get back on your feet? Um, and I you talked about, obviously, about the uh, the suicide um, uh, thoughts and attempt. But was there uh, difficulty in that transitional process? And then what was your way kind of climbing your way back out of that to some sense of normalcy? Because that transition really that I experienced was the most difficult transition. I mean, being a team guy was easy. But then, you know, integrating into civilian life and setting your own schedule and doing your own thing was oddly difficult for us. That's horrible. I mean, we work around like-minded people for so long that that's what you expect normal to be. You say something, it gets done. Something needs done, you go do it. You don't even say anything and it gets done. Um you know, pick that up, clean that, fix that. It's done. Nobody complains. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, they do. You get every now and you get that. But overall, shit gets done. You come to the civilian world, and and now not to upset civilians because I'm a civilian and we're all civilians doing different jobs. Um, it's different. It's not the urgency behind the job in the military is like, if you don't do it, somebody could die. If you don't do it, somebody might get hurt. You know, if you don't do it, we could lose a mission or, or fail. So there's always that behind the scenes, that, that thought process of I cannot fail. So now transition to civilian life where I ask people to do stuff and they're, they're late. They don't, they do a half job or even the kids raising children, you know, there's dishes in the sink. Clean that up. Clean your room once a week, you know, and, and I go up there. And it's not clean. Well, they're kids. What am I expecting? Right. But I lose my shit and I can't understand why people can't get things done. Awareness for me came when my wife told me I'm not your soldier. Um, mm -hmm. I was like, what? what are you talking about? You know, I'm not your soldier. I go, nobody's a soldier. I'm a civilian. Yeah, but you talk like a soldier. And I said, well, what do you think I'm going to talk like? That's what I've been for 25 years. And, oh, let's talk about the 10 years after. That's still who I am trickling off. You know, it's, it's petering out a little bit, but I'm a soldier. I said, well, you're a civilian right now. You're a veteran and you're a civilian. And I was like, you know, when I was in the military, I trained to be like the people around me. I worked hard to be better than the people around me. I worked hard to shoot better. I worked hard to CQB. I worked hard to know my job and, and oh, to be a good leader. And I paid attention. So why won't I do that now for the civilian world? Why won't I put in the same amount of effort to blend in here versus go against it? I mean, look at social media nowadays. I don't know who's doing what and who's for what anymore. All I know is people scream at each other 
and they look for the very first opportunity to trash somebody. And what helped me in transition was to learn that, you know, all this fighting I did for America, quote unquote, for America, for my buddies left and right, for your freedoms. Why don't I support those freedoms for you? You know, you're free to go burn a flag, right? If it's not illegal, go do it. If I don't like it, well, I don't like it, right? But I fought for your freedom to do that. And I take that all the way through. And I know a lot of people be pissed off at me for saying that. But if I'm being real, right, and it's legal to do, why would I go out there and, and lose my mind? Why would I get into some kind of Twitter war with somebody over that? That shit, nothing's getting done with all this. People don't understand that I fought for this country. I fought for the people that live in it to be able to do that. And now that I'm that person, you know, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to talk about what I believe in. I'm going to spread the word that I love. And I'm not going to mess with you on yours. And I, I don't want you to mess with me on mine. And that's kind of the way this world's supposed to work, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> when you create awareness to what upsets you and then you sit down and you think, well, why does that upset me? Well, that's I'm used to doing it a different way. OK, well, why? Well, that different way was because of combat or because I was in the military. Well, now I kind of learned to embrace the differences in people because that's what makes being a civilian unique. You know, you work in a company together, but it may be a big corporation. You're all doing different jobs. You know, you may not see each other. You know, you, who do you really hang out with that you think are that close as a civilian? Right. You'll never get that. You'll rarely get that in the civilian world. You get in the military right away. As soon as someone shoots at you, boom, you're all brothers. You know, wow, we made through that. You know, that was crazy. We joined together. We, we, we got better together. We went and assaulted at something and we, we took down a, a country or some enemy. And, and you know what? We'll never, never be apart. You know, think about it. Are there friends that you'll be friends with forever? Or are there people that you went to war with that, you know, you're not really friends with because they're jerks, right? <laughs> There's people I won't talk to, mm -hmm. you know? absolute best friends of mine in the past that uh they just don't get it they keep trying to drag me down i used to look for people that i fit in with and now i look for i look for certain people you know because you become like the people you hang around the most and i i, I judge everybody like are you an anchor or a sail you know my wife's both but i don't want people that are just anchors and keep me from going somewhere i like people that are sails you know pull me along and help me along the way and I shed all the anchors now because it's just, uh, you know, I don't want to become like them. Are, are my, you, my, my wife tells me, don't take advice from people you wouldn't trade places with. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. And I know, speaking of your wife, um, Jen Satterley, uh, you, I've talked to her a couple of times on LinkedIn and, you know, setting this stuff up and, and just seeing what she's doing with the foundation, which we'll talk about in a bit. But um, was she a pivotal person? and support being that boat for you that, that keeps you afloat, that keeps you, uh, you know, on track. It, it, I feel like, you know, this, this is just obviously perception, but sometimes obviously perception is reality. And I'm just, I'm looking at that thinking, man, was she a, a integral part to the support network that helped you through this process? Yeah. Yeah. She was my rock. I mean, she was literally, she's literally the person who saved my life. Um, she's the one who texted me when I was about to shoot myself and she didn't know it at the time, but when I finally told her what she did that night, uh, she immediately quit her job and became a health coach 
and she got me uh, healthy physically with nutrition and my diet, which immediately got my mind a little bit better so it could actually function and operate properly. Um, once she did that, she literally did not let up, but started sending me to different things, transcendental meditation, um, acupuncture, yoga. I mean, literally going to counseling and different counselors and finding the right counselor, you know, until we found emotionally focused therapy, which we ended up hiring her for, for our nonprofit. But there was never one thing that worked right away. It was always just, here is what we're going to do. We're going to try this today. And I opened myself up to the fact that I would, I would do it. I ask uh, a lot of, a lot of my friends or veterans that hit me up all the time. Have you gone to therapy? Well, that therapist hasn't been to war. They don't know shit. I go, really? Have you been to school for to be a therapist? And they're like, well, no. And I go, then you don't know shit about that either. You have support people in your life. They do a job that you can't do, and they're necessary. Why the hell would you say this therapist hasn't been to war? She won't understand. Well, no, she won't understand war, but she understands the outcome of it. She understands, uh, you know, trauma and stress and the need for connection in our lives. You know, it's the fact that I don't need anybody. That's not true. We all need somebody. We all strive for connection and people that tell me, no, you know, all I need is five minutes with them and I'll tell them how wrong they are. If they just listen, you know, it just drives me crazy. People, people trying to live that, uh, that culture. It's, it's a culture of chasing women partying. We talked about, they get out or they, or they, uh, or they're still in, you know, but social media is so big with people spreading their stories now that, you know, I see people talking about, I'm so tired of whiny veterans and this PTS. I went to war and I did all these things and I'm fine. I'm a warrior. Man. That's what I made for. And I'm like, you're so full of shit. So just, full of shit. I hate just that. wait, just one day you'll wake up but, and that's fine, but don't, don't preach, you know, and somebody tagged me on it. And so I read it and I, and I had to jump in like, you know, this is not the leadership we're looking for. You know, this is not what we're trying to tell people who are already afraid to ask for help because he's already had people like, yeah, me too. I'm so sick of whiny vets. I'm like, me too. I'm sick of the homeless veteran under the bridge, raising his hand, blah, blah, blah. You know, the veteran that got in and got out in four years Mm -hmm. and bitches about his life when he didn't have a life before he got in, he didn't get a skill taught to him while he was in. And now he's out saying the VA sucks. Well, the VA is one of the largest organizations in the world for 21,800,000 veterans who, oh, by the way, you get what you pay for. You're going to wait in line for it. Mm-hmm. It's free. So what do you think you're going to get from one of the largest organizations in the world trying to take care of 21,800,000 veterans? You know, I have, I've never had a problem. I did 25 years. I have health coverage. It's all paid for. I pay a copay. It's easy. I go to whatever doctor I want. And I've never been to the VA, right? Mm-hmm. I've never been to the v- a VA hospital. So the ones that you hear the most are the ones, Tom's Tom's you know world here, are the ones that just are just miserable anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're really not trying to get help. It's either their identity and they like it or, you know, there's something behind it or they need help, but they just won't listen. I'll tell people straight up, man, I wasn't listening for a long, long time. When I finally started to listen and I took action and I treated it, my, my wife's like, this is just more training. This is your next mission. So get your ass into it and start fucking rehearsing, you know? Oh, okay. Well, to do this mission, I need to know this. I need to be healthy myself. I need to understand that. So I'm going to go over here and get well here. I'm going to study this. I'm going to take this. I'm going to go help people over here. So I already have a mission. 
I've got a tribe of people that are building up around me that want the same thing and they want to help. And, you know, here we are. Now we're conducting missions in a different way. You know, my life's not going to be war forever. Mm-hmm. I, di- I didn't get killed in combat. I mourn my brothers all the time. But to go on miserable and to make their suff- their loss or their suffering not worth it, right? If I had to ask every one of my brothers who are dead, would you want me miserable or do you want me living happily? I know they'd tell me happily. Yep. So I don't want to I don't want to tarnish their memory by living miserably my whole life. Uh, are you I'm, I'm I've said it a couple of times out loud to friends and maybe on podcasts and stuff but I'm I'm really concerned more so now in history especially with the unit and use of fic use of sock as a whole. I mean it really special operations as a whole that in the next decade within this decade with the amount of warfare that senior guys have fought, that we're going to have a catastrophic mental health crisis bigger and bolder than anything we've ever seen. I mean, I I just got told this morning that a, a guy that I knew named Mackey was, had killed himself in the end of October, 40 years old, special operations guy I worked with in the SIF, and uh, wound up taking his, taking his own life, and he had seven kids i mean he left oh my his, his wife and seven kids and I, I i saw that this morning and i went man you know there could be this because i I've, I've talked to the guys that are getting out and they're they're tough right they're hardcore dudes that get out and then it hasn't hit them yet but i know it will and then when that right. that time comes are, are you fearful that that we are going to have a catastrophe and is that one of the reasons or the one, you know, part of the reason that you started the all secure foundation. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm, I'm terrified of such a huge problem. It's, it's so fixed. It's so fixable that we've decided and while we're attacking the issue and while we're having our retreats for couples and while we're putting out content is that we're going to try to change the culture. You know, we've, we've been invited back to SWIC, um, four times a year now to talk to the new guys coming in all of them, civil affairs and psyops and the SF, you know, and all the operators to talk to them about this exact topic. And I was, I was opened up to the fact that the leadership was in the room, the cadre were in the room and they're like, listen, you know, the commander's like, you're not going to get in trouble. Just let us know what's going on. We'll remove you from what you need and we'll get you the help. We'll put you right back in there. You know, you're not going to get in trouble don't worry about this or that. And this is after I laid in all the shit that could go wrong with him, you know? And, uh, and the commander did his little smoothed over talk. Right. And then the Sergeant major spun around and goes, listen up assholes, if you self assess and you fucking come for help before you get in trouble. We'll take care of you. Don't come to me after you get a DUI saying I got PTS. It's too late. And that word right there, that made me so happy that, and the fact that we talked to some ROTC classes like Central Washington University and, and, and up at uh, Chapel Hill. Those people are thinking about it now, too. They're not even in the military yet, really. But at least they're thinking about it and talking about it and more aware of it. And that's making me happy. But I know it's going to be a slow progression mm. um, to figure out how to do it and how to take care of so many people and how to find that many therapists. And, and they're going to try to figure out a way to mass produce it and make it go quickly. But I know that right now there's so many people working on different ways to assess and, and determine PTS, whether it's, it's biomarkers in your blood or, or using security equipment that they use in airports now to answer a few questions to determine who's bad or good. 
you know, you come back, put in different questions and this computer within three seconds determines whether you have PTS or not. I know I'm a little bit worried about that, but I think that they're going to be able to narrow it down, but they're going to, they're playing catch up the whole time. So, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's going to be so many of these wonderful people that are leaders in this world that we need right now that think that they're the problem and they take themselves out. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the strong silent ones we worry about versus the whiny ones that you can get. Not whiny. That's, that's wrong. There are, there are whiny ones. And then there's some that reach out. If you know what to look for, there's some that are screaming for help. Those are the easy ones to find. It's those strong silent ones that just, I'm cool. You know, all my friends that never act like they have a problem yet. We were side by side shooting people and getting shot at and lost friends. And they never act like they have a problem and they don't reach out scares the shit out of me. You know, Mm -hmm. um, the ones that reach out and say, you know, I know you're busy and my problem's not like yours. I'm like, shut up. You know, those are stories. How you got PTS is just a story. Mm -hmm. I don't even care about half of people's stories. I don't care how you got PTS. Talk to me about this. Your drinking, your family life, your feelings, your emotions, your child. You know, how are you and your kids? Do you have any kids? What do you do on a daily basis and a weekly basis? And what do you do on weekends? And I can tell you if you've got PTS or not, or you're just simply depressed or something. You know, I can I can help you with that. But it's those ones that won't reach out and won't admit that, you know, now I'm drinking every night till I pass out. I'm anesthetizing myself to sleep. I wake up. I do it all over again. But I don't have a problem. I'm like, that right there is PTS rearing his ugly head. You know, we're self-medicating to either feel or forget. You know, I, I drank to, to feel something. I drank to have, and I still drink. I mean, but then I drank everything, you know, it's binge drinking to, 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 to do this, doing different drugs just to have feelings and emotions, but they were all fake. You know, they were all wrong. Hanging out in the bar by myself, growling at people when they tried to talk to me. I was like, what am I doing? I wanted company, but I didn't want to talk to anybody because mm-hmm. I hated everybody. And then you got the group of people that pack up and move to Montana because they hate people and they just want to clear a killing field and I'll kill anybody that comes near my porch. Well, moving away from people doesn't fix the problem. It just removes you from all the help and all your friends and leaves you alone with your problems. So you started the All Secure Foundation, which is a nonprofit, but also um, you did that with with your wife. And you guys, uh, talk to me about how that started, and then talk to me about you guys' mission and what you guys are up to now. Yeah, my wife gets all the credit for that. Um, when she, she started working doing um, RMTs, she was filming, and I was doing some training in a company I'd co-founded. And they were filming for AR purposes and we were filming for, uh, you know, just for the training. And uh, she was the only female and all these male SEALs, SF guys, you know, Rangers. And, and they would end up talking to her and she ended up being like the den mother. And it wasn't like, hey, you got any girlfriends or this or that. It was, hey, my wife doesn't talk to me. She's mad at me. Or, hey, my girlfriend over here. And, oh, by the way, my wife over here. My wife's like, wait a minute. You just told me I had a wife and a gr- girlfriend. Yeah, this is so normalized that she was picking up on it. And she's easy to talk to. And all these guys were, were, were telling her the truth. They hit her up, and then they break down and cry. And then, you know, so she started getting all the people on health and nutritional supplements. And like, here, these work for Tom. He lost 40 pounds. He's feeling so much better. They got off 13 different pills from the DOD and the VA that was, you know, prescribing him for this and that. You know, he's down to two pills a day for, for allergies and for, you know, acid reflux, which I got off of that, too. 
And so people started jumping on on phone calls like, how did you do that? Mostly it was all about weight loss, right? They don't consider the fact that it's also helping your brain as you put the gas in the tank and it goes straight to the brain. Um, and so when you're doing like training like that, you're living out of a, a, a gas station, eating hot dogs and ch- snacks and chips, you know, when you're on target and working 22 hour days and driving the other two to the next target to start over. And she saw what it was doing to everybody. And then she started talking to everybody and they started calling all the time. And we were both on the phone 15 hours a day, you know, hang up, get on the phone again, hang up, get on the phone again. She's crying. She's laughing and talking. And then the next phone call. And she's like, you know what? Everything's so similar. We have to start a foundation. And I'm like, yeah, okay. What does that mean? How do you do that? She's like, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. She got to, she got to work, man. I mean, she seriously got to work and, uh, I'm still working and training so we can make money while she was diving into the foundation, how to set it up, how to get lawyers to donate time and, and this and that, and got it all done to the point, you know, two years, three years later that we could start, you know, I finally just came off and quit everything and went full-time on the foundation because we were so busy with people calling with um, nutrition. And then, oh, by the way, I have these emotions. And oh, by the way, my son doesn't talk to me. My spouse doesn't like me. Everything's horrible. And we realized the need that, you know, you take a veteran hunting, you take a veteran to Disney, you give a veteran a home. Those are all great things. But when they go home, who's still there? Who didn't get the help? Who's, who's part of your foundation? You know, your spouse. So a lot of these guys were coming home from different treatment facilities. Hey, I'm no longer an alcoholic. I quit doing drugs. And then they get home and, oh, you got bills to pay. Your wife's still mad at you for being gone for 20 years, by the way, and, and your affairs. You know, you got help. And she's like, what about me? What about me? So we found that when we take care of the spouse as well, you're taking care of the, the family unit. And you're, you're building a better foundation. So when that veteran does come home from treatment, the spouse is aware of what those triggers are, what, what awareness is and what it looks like. And, and, and the veteran is aware of what the spouse is going through and, and how you look to them and, and how fearful they are for your personality. Like I physically change when I get upset. You know, my stepdaughter says something smart to me like 13 year olds do. And I'm physically shaking. I'm not mad, but my body changes biologically. My eyes change. My wife's like, you look like a shark. You look like a, a, a hulking bear that's going to rip somebody's face off. You don't even know it. Wow. And I'm like, wow, I had no clue that I'm scaring the kids. And then we get that from other people. They're like, yeah, my kids are afraid of me. My wife's afraid of me. They're afraid I won't kill them. And, you know, and I do get mad. And I lash out and I yell. And I go, oh, you don't have to cover up for me, man. Trust me. I've done it all. And, uh, creating that awareness and so we got into the foundation we finally got some great donors and some people who really believe in what we did and we proved to them that you know we're not going to take money and start a foundation that's not going to work and we're going to spend it on ourselves and uh you know now we this year we pulled off a retreat that that went so well um we people loved it that next year we're doing six um add the the four that we're doing for for sf group and then so many are piling on top of that now that we're looking like, okay, now we're growing. Now we're going to need more money from other people, right, to grow more because we have more work than we have money now, So, which is good, and we'll get the money, you know, hopefully. But it's a chicken and an egg scenario, right? We need money to do this, but we need this to do money, and nobody will – you know, it's, it's, it's a balancing act for a foundation. But 
just the fact that we can we saw how many people were in need and how many people we were helping we thought we had to do it on a massive scale if we could you know if um it, the the website's all secure mission.com right is there a donation link on that no it's it's all secure mission we're going to get rid of that because that was a corporate retreat kind of thing we started we wanted to start up or a speaking engagement thing you know money will flow through here to go to the foundation it's all secure foundation.org got it which is the foundation um i think you can get to mission from there but that's a whole nother way to make money for the foundation um as well it was kind of like a, a financial thing of separating the two but there's too much confusion in the name so we'll probably change mission to something else but i mean literally that's why i wrote the book i didn't want to write i mean i, I you know i'm never going to speak out right i'm never going to do that you know what are your navy seal writing a book now i'm like i've heard it all right <laughs> like, from unit guys and i'm like oh yeah yeah do you know what the book's about and they're like well no and so i explained it to him like oh, oh okay well i support that then i'm like well thank you for asking me what the book was about before you trash me and called me a navy seal that's funny uh, but I, I fully expected it, right? I mean, you know the deal. Oh my gosh! You know, don't you dare speak out. I, you know, my wife has had had wine dumped on her. Um, um, I've had people cuss me out at formals oh. because I was doing speaking and I spoke to their child at a school the night before. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I spoke at you know such and such school yesterday. Well, my son's in that school, and I'm thinking, you're here. Your husband's here. Why is your son in that school? Because that's a school for kids with issues, you know, because their parents are gone all the time. I know because my son was in one. Mm. Um, screaming at me, you know, drunk, right? The typical drunk, the spouse, all, all the guys were drunk. And I'm like, man, this is how I used to roll, right? Oh. I'm at a formal. This is how I rolled. And now we're at an after party. And literally, there's leadership everywhere. Leadership on the deck. You know, former leadership. I'm out there with my wife and here comes that girl that yelled at me on the, coming down the steps of the formal place, you know? And I just said, Oh, thank you for your opinion. I walked away and now she's at the party comes to have some more words with me with a piece of pizza in her hand and a glass of wine. Oh. Misses the step down onto the deck. <laughs> 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 kind of fun to watch. Ends up dumping the wife all over my wine, all over my wife with her white pants and throwing the falling with the pizza on the face down on the deck. And I go to help her up and me and a, a former unit leader uh, is uh, helping her up and she looks at me she goes you and i went oh you <laughs> i go well are you okay <laughs> i'm fine let go of me you asshole and literally gives me her her mind about how you can't say delta and i go well i understand how you feel that way because you're in i get it you can't i can't it's a, it's not supposed to be that way i go it's legal and if you ask all these people who i cleared everything i do through They'll let you know, too. And I, maybe you should go find your husband and have him calm you down, you know? <laughs> Literally freaking out, freaking out, freaking out. And finally, I just told my wife, I go, you know what? Let's just get out of here. So mm. one of the leadership, you know, grabbed us and let me walk you out. Like, let me show you some support here and walk out with you. And I was talking to him. I said, this is the problem. This is the culture. I mean, when you're in, it doesn't seem like a problem. But with all the leadership here, everybody's completely and utterly fucked up trashing each other trashing people who used to be in the unit you have no idea what you're saying i go it's the culture that we think you know you can't talk about it and I, it changes off and on and you know but legally i know what i can do and legally anyway i'm not i'm not saying anything about any secrets or any names everything i'm doing is to help people you know and i and it's all within special operations right now 
you know, I get a lot of, why don't you help all veterans? I'm like, you don't know how many veterans there are. Do you know how many of us there are? So I start with what I know, which is special operations. You know, the 1% that does 99% of the work is where I start. I'll get to the other 1% later. Sorry. You know, I just, <laughs> there's not enough money in the world or time. We never turn anybody down. So, but that stigma of don't talk, don't do this. I'm like, we're trying to help people here. You know, we're, we're trying to help you. Yeah. I've, I've had, I've had unit members reach out to me over stuff and some of it was justified because going on social media and talking about anything and I was just talking about stuff and, um, most of it, 99% of it is just to help people. And I, I've noticed that same culture, which is, um, it's like a dog eat dog culture where mm-hmm. we're very good at eating our own and we yeah. are, we are our own worst enemies in that sense. And, and, and something, you know, the SEAL, the SEAL community has that in, in a sense, but not as much. And I have noticed that about the unit and noticed it about uh, you know, as a whole. What do you think that stems from? And, and is there a way to change that culture, whether it's leadership or, or just internal uh, changes? I think we were taught that, so that's what we do. I, I think that they're changing it now because even – back then during that incident um it happened on the steps of a resort and then it was a short walk over to the after party um from that incident of are you tom saturday yes fuck you you know blah 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 i go thank you for your opinion and walk away i i immediately found the leadership that was still in um working with other generals and in different places and i said hey listen I've been open about this. I'm writing a book. I do speaking engagements. The book's not about secrets. It's about helping people. Um, Am I doing anything wrong? And I was told over and over again, you are not. We actually talk about the unit now. We just don't talk about other things. We actually say people can talk about it. You're allowed when you get out. Things are changing. You know, it's no big deal. I said, okay, cool. You know, so that's slowly changing, but the word doesn't get out. And you know, when you're in and you're in something great, you don't want it to get out. You don't want others to know about it. So secret things are also very more, much more sexy, you know? Mm-hmm. So even when I wrote the book, I don't use the word Delta in at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who know what Delta is know what it is already. People who don't wouldn't know what you were saying. So, you know, I choose to say the most secretive elite special operations unit in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, if I don't know what it is, I'll think one or two things, maybe, you know, if I and if I don't know what it is, I certainly want to know what you're talking about. What is the most secretive elite unit in the world? You know, let me read it. And all of it was like my wife says, you know, you hide in the peas and the brownies, you know, you make it sweet. So people want to pick it up, but they're getting their nutrition anyway, because it's hidden in there, which is the entire book. Mm. But that culture, you know, when you're part of something elite, you want to keep it elite. And when you talk about it and all the jokes people have made about seals over the years and writing books and, you know, just busting each other out for fun half the time, you know, and now I said, oh, someone's writing a book. Well, yeah, so did the founding member. Uh, so did a bunch of other people. So do other people who write nonfiction about what seems to be real missions, but it's not, you know. <laughs> so we just attack what we've been taught mm. without really thinking about it, I think. Um mm. People are just taught, you know, you know, loose lips sink ships. People get killed. You know, I didn't release anything you couldn't Google. I didn't. I didn't release shit. Really, I, I didn't talk about anything 
that you couldn't Google. I didn't confirm anything because I didn't say the words Delta in the book, you know, and it all got approved by the unit before I even gave it to anyone else. So I went through every channel possible to the point where I've had other other unit members call me up now. Hey, are you writing a book? What's how are you doing? Because we're writing one, too. I go, all right, here's what you do. You know, it's OK. So I think it's growing. Um, I think people want to get the word out there. Some of them just want to get war stories out there, which, OK, that's cool. People like to read war stories, too. Um, but we just chose to go down the path of, of helping. You know, our story is designed to help. And that that whole cultural thing of the secret unit, you can't talk. I don't know why the seals are different other than. I mean, you know, there's so many seals, right? People hear seals and they think seal team six. They think, oh, the elite, the elite seals. Now, there's so many seals, you know, to me, I consider them like rangers. They're trained. They're great dudes, but they're not six. You know, six goes a different level. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, you know, the white side seals. I don't know how many of those guys are writing the books, which is a whole different, you know, level than six is. Mm-hmm. It'd be like telling a ranger you can't write a book when, you know, but all, you know what, if you think about it, all units go through that too, don't they? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's an operator now. Everybody's got an operator beard. Even college kids now have operator beards. Um, <laughs> you know, they want to look the part, right? Or we're rangers. You can't talk about ranger bullshit, you know? And I'm like, mm, well, you're rangers, right? Mm-hmm. You can kind of Google anything nowadays. So honestly, saying something doesn't exist is probably not as important as keeping secret what you need to keep secret in that unit, you know? Yeah. Like what? the Brits did, you know, yes, 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 exists. We're just not going to tell you who works there. Fine. Sure. They exist. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely been overkill. Like, I, I mean, even threatened. I mean, I've been threatened with being PNG. And I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean I just can't go to a formal or like, what does it, what does that <laughs> right. actually, what does that actually mean? It's like, I'm not going to compromise any kind of security. That's just not in anybody's interest. And, uh, I think what, like you said, your book is different because the mission isn't about the operational mission. It's about the experience that you went through. And we had talked before the podcast about how I thought that was so impactful because to have a CSM with your experiences uh, to come out and say, hey, look, this is something that in our community we don't talk about. And now that I have the opportunity because I have a platform, I'm going to talk about it and educate you on how it happened to me. And thus, obviously, you could be better prepared for it happening to you. Because it's, I, I love, I've always been the guy that, that has been around other guys who made fun of those guys that are like, I can't believe that guy is having issues. or And then secretly been involved with those same guys having issues underlined and us seeing those issues but nobody's saying anything about it. It was like just, right. it was completely just something you didn't talk about. And so let's talk about the book. Let's talk about uh, what uh, the book entails. It's called All Secure. It's uh, a special operations soldiers fight to survive on the battlefield and the home front. Um, I'm writing a book on mindset, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, it's the most difficult thing. Right, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and so when when you said you started this book, what was the inspiration for it? And talk talk us through the book. Oh, man. Again, my wife, um, you know, we started working on the foundation and we were talking about ways to get the word out to as many people as possible. You know, we talked about online content and how long that would take to build. 
you know, selling something to the government, you know, like here's a sexual harassment training. Well, here's PTS awareness training, you know, sell it to the government or get on the, you know, national media. And so how do you do that? Nobody cares this shit. You know, it's, it's, it's not a good enough story. There's so much going on. And my wife's like, you need to write a book. And I was like, yeah, right. Uh, F off. I'm not writing anything, you know? No, you need to write a book. I'm like, I will get persecuted forever. You know, she's like, you know what, what better way, right? What better way? And so we slowly started, um, on, you know what, we'll do a memoir. It'll be about me and my life, but not really just about, it's not just about me. It's about, literally it was, it was 36,000 pages longer. We, we had to cut it down when we, when we finished because we got so in depth, you know, so it just starts out in childhood. I mean, the book bounces around to keep you interested. So it's not just, I was born and I grew up and I got in the army and I'm out now. Um, I like the way it ended up being laid out. The co-author Steve Jackson did a great job of pushing me and pushing me and getting these stories and deeper and deeper. You know, he went on jobs with me and watched how I, I led people during RMTs. And he, and he went to Congress when we spoke at Congress um, a couple years back for my very first speech at Congress um, about PTS and, and the families. And uh, he really put it together well. It just takes you through me growing up and how I was just a normal kid just a kid who wanted to play and grow up and God knows he didn't know what he wanted to be when he grew up like every other kid in the planet. Um, you know, cop, fireman, doctor, who knows, whatever changes every day to boom, I'm in the army and I had no clue, you know, and then takes you through the, you know, the schools that I went through and, and, and how I kind of went from getting in and out to liking what I was doing and seeing the different special ops world. And, and then it takes you to how, through the missions in the book that we talk about, you know, including Black Hawk Down missions, uh, first time told by, you know, a Delta operator side of it, because the first, the movie and the book were written with mostly the Ranger side of it. And, and so people see that side. And even when I see that movie, I'm like, wow, there's so much that happened that I have no idea was happening mm. because you're looking through these toilet paper holes, you know, these, these paper towel holders, when you're in combat, all you see is what's in front of your face. And the guy could be standing to your left and right and see something completely different because it affects everyone differently. And so it talks about the war stories that some people like, but inside those war stories are terror and fear and, and loss of hope. And then the time in between Somalia and all the training at home and the loss of family. And then the 20 years we were at war in Iraq and Afghanistan and the missions and how they tied back to my initial my initial combat and now I'm a leader and what that does to your soul and, and all the lives lost to, to me getting out and almost taking my own life to, you know, chasing a job and a life. I didn't even know what I wanted and, and how to stay alive anymore and giving up and, and then finally having, and then it becomes a love story, you know? So it's, it's a story of adversity. It's this war book. It's a book for leadership and it's, then it's a love story. And then it's a, and then it's a book of hope in the end with different modalities that I went through and how to get help. And, and it takes away everybody's excuse of why they shouldn't go out and try to get some sort of help because they deserve to live healthy and happy, you know, and it's, it's a process. It's a 10 year on average process to overcome complex PTSD. Hmm. And it's all, if you think about it, it's all muscle memory. It took you that long to get that way. It's going to take a little bit to undo it. It's your new habit. It's your new muscle memory. It's your new norm. And so the book is kind of designed to drive people 
down that train of thought and to let them know there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's no reason to stop. There's no reason to not keep trying. And oh, by the way, it drives you to our foundation. And our foundation doesn't just do help for you. It also is a resource library to send you to another foundation if ours isn't for you. We're not that foundation's like, you know, all the veterans are ours. We've we've actually called and tried to partner with certain organizations like, well, you know, we're kind of going for the same people. I'm like, really? These aren't contract jobs. You know, you don't make more money by helping more people. I just want people to get help. And if it's not here, I'll send you somewhere. You know, if it's if it's religious based, if it's faith based or religious based or if it's if it's dependency based with PTS, you know, there's different organizations that we drive people to that we don't do. That we spend just as much time helping these people get to these other organizations if it's not ours. We, we spend hours and hours on the phone talking to people we don't know. It's not really our job description, but we'll never not, you know, we'll never turn anybody down. Trying to get them past that feeling like uh, I'm not worth help or my problem's not as bad as yours. You know, it's like, really? Your problem is just as bad. Your story might be different to how you got there. But your your family deserves it. You deserve it. And there's a way to get there. So that, that book takes you through that entire path that anyone in any job or any life that's had anything go wrong in life and, and it sucks for a while, you know, and you want to figure out how to get back on track, that book will, will show you a way to get there. I'm excited for it, man. I just ordered it on um, – I do the audio book now, and I just got it on Amazon. Are you? Did you are they out now? Or have been, they are. been asking me because I read it. And I don't know when it's coming out. I assume they hold it in hopes that you'll buy a book, you know, because it's cheaper. I'm assuming they're trying to make more money, but I don't know if they're working on it or if they always hold the audios, but I, I'm glad that they're out now. Yep. I just bought it and it gives you the Kindle option, audiobook, hardcover, and then the audio CD. Did you do the voice for your audiobook? I did. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's really good. I though. did. That's real cool. They asked me if I wanted to do it. And of course, I didn't know what to say. And I said, well, what does that mean for the book? And Hachette said, well, the publicist said, well, uh, authors who read their own book tend to sell better. I go, well, then I'll do it. I'll put in the work. If it's going to get more people out there, I'll do it. You know, that's awesome, man. I'm I'm so glad you did that. Cause I I think, uh, you know, I've kind of been in this, whatever game you call it, a business game. And, you know, when you're looking at educating people, there's no better medium than actually having a book to be able to tell the story. And, and the fact that, at the end of that, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you because they were having issues or because they were trying to help the foundation, the fact that you guys have led it back to the uh, foundation is is really cool. That's per- to me, it's like perfect timing. It seems like it it's worked out perfectly, and it, and it's working. It's amazing. I'm I'm still taken back every day. I get messages, emails. Um, people get my number, call me, you know, out of the blue. Or I'm, I'm on page seven and I'm bawling. And I'm like, whoa, what's on page seven? You know, I'm not, I've written it and read it and written and read it and read it out loud so much. I'm like, oh, I hope I never read it again. But then I pick it up and read it and I start crying. And everybody is saying the same thing, which is, it, it's not me bragging. I still don't believe it. But it's what I'm happy about is the fact that it's working. The effect that we wanted it to have is that effect that's happening. It's it's an emotional roller coaster. People are riveted and, and, and they can't put it down. And they're, they're crying and they're saying me too. And I want to help or I want, I need help. So it's perfect. I mean, so far it's perfect. Are, are, um, are, do you have any planned, um, 
what are they called? The, the events where you, you show up at the bookstore and then you do like the signing or do you have any of those yeah. lined out? We don't have any planned. We, we did one locally, um, for a friend whose sister owned a bookstore. It was great. Um, we do, I did a couple other nonprofit organization fundraisers where I did book signings there. Um, I did a book signing at a fundraiser for our nonprofit down in Houston last week. And, um, Johnny Morris for Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, he had us, you know, we do our retreats. A lot of our retreats are there at Big Cedar on Table Rock Lake. It's a beautiful setting. It's owned by Bass Pro Shops and Johnny Morris. He's worth like eight something billion dollars. He is like your father or grandfather. When we met him, you know, he asked us to do the Pledge of Allegiance for uh, a, a concert that he was throwing it, throwing there. And um, it was it was so amazing. And he's so such a nice person. I mean, he literally gave us one hundred thousand dollars on stage that night. Wow. Didn't even know. Our, didn't even know our nonprofit. His father fought in the Battle of the Bulge. They were best friends. He becomes very emotional about it. He's just asked us back um, December 10th and 11th to Big Cedar to for their huge Christmas party. They got two different days of Christmas parties for like 5,000 of their employees. Um, and he's going to carry, he was talking about carrying the book in all his past pro shops and Cabela's to wow. sell it because he's so into it. He gives, he gives so much money to organizations to help people. It is, I don't want to say ridiculous, but that's not the right word, but it is, it is awesome how much money he gives to help other people and how much he truly cares. And it's, it's been heartwarming as to finding people out there with money that believe in our mission that are giving us money, you know, as well. That's amazing, man. And you said you, you do have a donation link on, on the actual allsecurefoundation.org website. Yes, we do. There's links for, there's links for help. There's a six week mind and body reset for fitness and exercise on there that people have started doing that have great results. Um, everything's free. We, we started to put on there and charge people, you know, what? we put it on there free. Um, there's a link to donate. You know, we ask donors, to help out we, we you know we held an auction last year on black friday auction we sold some things we made a little bit of money a lot of work right mm -hmm. we make shirts my wife designs everything she designed the website herself um we sell shirts we make a little bit of money there's a lot of work in that all our money comes from donors so we really focus on the fact that almost all of our percentages are going towards the retreats and going towards programs versus admin and gna Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of nonprofits start off, they're very heavy GNA for the first few to five years before they roll into they're heavy on programs, you know, where it starts looking good. And we've, we've managed to stay around 70% or higher for programs on our, on our funding. So we, we realized since we realized that the least amount of work to get the most bang for your buck is, is through donors, you know, people who really care and have the money. So we've targeted those certain people, you know, that, that have that and we're, and we're targeting grants and we're targeting, um, you know, we're doing other fundraisers that we hold ourselves, you know, like shoot with a, with a spec spec ops guy or, or a two day event of, you know, you want to be James Bond or something or, or just a leadership experience or event to where corporations can pay, learn something great or have a good time. And that money goes to help veterans. You know, it's not, it's not going to help me and, and my wife or active duty units that want resiliency training, you know, mm -hmm talking about taking these pjs who go through you know um a week-long exercise before they deploy for the last four days of it or add on four days bring in your spouses let them watch your last hit so they get a little understanding and then go let's go through a four-day 
resiliency training where you both learn about connection and, and triggers and awareness and talk about PTS and what it can do to you and your family and reconnecting, you know, and keep them going. So we're starting to do that with these, with these uh, organizations as well, where they pay. And then that money that they pay to get the training goes to veterans who don't pay and get the training as well. That's awesome. That's amazing that you guys are doing that. And, I, and make sure you guys keep us in mind if you guys need help for you know manpower or whatever to do anything. We're, we're always available and we're down up above uh, Phoenix, but we love to volunteer our time. I wanted to ask you because you know our our podcast focuses on survival and mindset uh, and is in that realm and genre. I wanted to ask you about survival and. You know, one of the things that I thought in the genre in going into survival and teaching it to civilians was that the things that we did in preparation led to positive outcomes during missions where you intentionally put yourself in the worst circumstance. I mean, when you land on top of a HVT's house in Mogadishu, Somalia, you don't do so blindly. You do so with preparation in mind. And there's kind of like a universal... Uh, outcome that's typical, which is success, mission success. What are some of the things that uh, you learned through your career in special operations that led to positive outcomes in operating, you know, at the tip of the spear? Like what what separates you uh, and, and the units that you worked in from, uh, you know, other unsuccessful potential units that, that operated in the space? I would say that Training mitigates risk, right? There's so many things that are dangerous out there, even even in a world where slightly dangerous or or your risk might be loss of income or, you know, a, a department falters for a little bit. But training and, and, and awareness and practice mitigates risk. And that failing, you know, we say failure is not an option. Well, okay, that's that's horseshit. That's all talk, right? You know, we, we have a no-fail mission. Oh, we're going to fail but we choose to fail as much as possible in training to learn from it. You know, failure is a learning tool for me. It's, it's, you know, doing those AARs after every mission in the unit, we would always go in, you know, the deal, hey, grab a beer, let's go do an AR. We didn't sit there and tell each other what we did right and mm -hmm. pat each other on the back, which is a detriment by the way, to the civilian world when you get out. <laughs> so keep that in mind for people, everybody listening, because I would come home, the house is kind of clean and I'd go in, well, we didn't do that. Who didn't do that? You know, <laughs> that doesn't go over well. <laughs> no, you're supposed to reward the kids, you know, with reward based. And I go, bullshit. They're supposed to do it right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're supposed to do everything right. You get in trouble when you do it wrong. <laughs> and it's just, we don't train our dogs that way. But I'm handling life this way. So, you know, what I've learned is that we're human. Hmm. We're designed to fail. And it's, and that's where you separate, let's, let's say the men from the boys. That's where you separate successes from those who will continue to fail until they learn it is when you fail, man, embrace it. Every time I start to fail, every time I failed, I learned from it. And now instead of being afraid of it, I just go do it. I'm going to fail some point. So if I don't start at all because I'm afraid of when it might happen or I have to prepare or I have to have the perfect opportunity before I start. Right. Or I want to cure cancer, but this drug doesn't cure all the cancers. It only cures 12 of the 13 cancers. Well, let's just keep working on it till we can cure all 13. Right. Well, no, get it out there and cure 12 and work on the 13th. So I, I, I learned that in the unit. I learned that along the way. It took a while, by the way, but 
to use failure as a tool, you know, fail forward, fail often and use it as a learning tool to do better because there's nobody in a room I've ever spoken to when I said, who hasn't failed before ever raises their hand. Even in a high school, by the way, I went to a high school and I was like, this is my moment. Someone's going to raise their hand. Some smart ass is going to raise their hand. They've never failed. And I'm going I'm to attack them, you know, in a high school. And nobody has ever raised their hand about not failing. I go, so the one thing we all have in common is we've all failed. So nobody's perfect. So stop, stop putting yourself down every day. I spent my life tormenting myself about not being perfect. And it destroyed me. It got in my way. So realize your weaknesses and make them your strengths, right? Work on your weaknesses. Your strengths, you got to maintain always. But your weaknesses, you have to work on a little more to, 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 to make them not weaknesses. But you're never going to have anything perfect, right? You're going to find something you do. You do it well. And there's all these ancillary things you have to do to make sure that happens. But we're all human. And when we realize we're all human and we all have our own opinions and we're all going to make mistakes, we can be a little easier on each other. And maybe if we're easier on each other, you know, we might be easier on ourselves. Because I, I, I learned the most about CQB when I was teaching it. Hmm. Right? Not while doing it yep. or being taught. But when I was teaching it to students, I learned more about CQB. When I was helping people in need, I learned more about what I needed to be helped. Mm. And I started out in the soup kitchen. My wife had me go give out food to the homeless, you know, and I did that for a couple of weeks. And I was like, I'm not going out hanging out with these losers, you know, and I'm talking to these nice people serving food. And in the end, I found out these people I was talking with that were serving food with were on work release programs. You know, they were inmates. They got out trying to do better. And I made friends with these guys and didn't even know to judge them, right? And all these people going through the line with these kids, I used to sit back and think, you know, I can't believe you're on the street with your kids. Why don't you get your kids in a home? They don't have the opportunity to do that. And here I am feeding them breakfast, you know, lunch and dinner. And and they, you know, they, and then, then God knows where they go stay, right? And I started having empathy for these people and realizing, wow, we all need a hand every now and then. And why judge somebody so quickly? Because they, they mess something up. Right. We're all we're all ready to point that finger. I certainly was for a long time. All you people ruined my life, you know, and I turned that finger on myself and pointed inward. And then I got to work. If um, if you had a name, one person that had the most profound impact on you in your military career, who would that be? My military career, that would be. That would be General Scotty Miller. Mm, I've heard that several times from, from the unit guys. Why? Why? His, why Scott Miller? Uh, no, I've party with Scott. Okay, we, we've <laughs> had our time. And then I watched. Um, I watched him grow. I watched him talk to people. I watched him in leadership positions with his calm demeanor. He listens. You know, I was always bah, bah, bah. as soon as you said something wrong, I'm on you. You know, I'm ready. To, I'm ready to prove you wrong. I'm ready to help you get better, but I'm ready to prove you wrong. You know, no. Uh, him. I watched him listen, digest, make a plan and then respond. And I learned, you know, don't reply all in an email, by the way. and Don't blast out that FU email. You know, think about it, sit on it, work through it and come up with a better a better response or a better plan of action. He more than anybody, you know, he, he came in in Somalia. General Sakalik was in all of our missions before General Miller came in. 
uh, General Zakalik, well, Colonel Zakalik, had to go home because his father died when we were in Somalia. So Scotty's first mission, not as ops officer, but as a was a troop commander, was October 3rd. Wow. And when we got in the house that night, he was in the house with me in the courtyard, you know, with, um, with the troop sergeant major. And I remember him asking, is it always like this? And I was oh, like, God. Hell, hell no, it's not been like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not been like, because he's seen it from the outside watching ISR, you know, and our limited ISR back then. You know, we probably had one camera on, on one Blackhawk. Um, but yeah, out in the field, it looked a lot different to him. And I remember him asking, is it always like that? I was like, no, it, this is different. And I want to thank you for that, by the way, you know, Sakalik had everything under control. You're blowing this one, but, uh, no, he had nothing to do with it, but yeah, he's, uh, he's been there when I retired. Um, and I felt like I was getting, you know, treated, mis- mistreated, you know, cause nothing good ends well, or it would never end. Um, you know, and I felt like I was getting the shaft leaving the unit, even though I was retiring, he called in from Afghanistan for like an hour long BTT talking about all the good things and all the times and all the leadership and stuff, you know, and at a time when I was standing up in front of of the unit, not wanting to be there, feeling like shit, you know, he's up there singing praises and his, and it's just calm presence. He's always been there for me. He's always uh, been available with advice and it's always good advice, you know? He's going to go far. He'll go as high as he wants. That's for sure. Yeah. He's an amazing leader and an amazing man. Um, what's, what's his command position right now? Oh God, he's in charge of everything in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, he's running the war in Afghanistan. I don't, I don't even know his exact title, but yeah, he's been over there running the entire effort. Um, almost a year now. Right. Do you have any, uh, do you have any regrets from your military career that you, if you had the opportunity to take, take back, um, or do things differently, would you? Yeah, I would have, uh, I would have stayed on the legal, more and ethical path more, Hmm. you know, um, you know, and I'm talking about chasing women and then some of the other things that you did that, you know, aren't right, but you do them because the ends justify the means kind of thing. No war crime stuff, but, you know, mostly off time kind of hanging out, personal issue, life stuff where I just followed the pack. I wish I would have had the thought process to be the leader I'm trying to be now um, to be a better leader than I thought I was being then. You know, when I was a leader, I thought, well, I'll no longer hang out with my men because I don't that's an awkward position to be in. You don't want to see your men doing something they're not supposed to be because it's my job to correct it. Right. Mm-hmm. Think about that fucked up process. Mm. I'm the leader now, so I can't hang out with you guys after work anymore. TDY. Cause I can't see this shit. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself this. So I reclused myself even more, you know, you hang out with a smaller group of people you know, my commo guy, my medic, my PJ, you know, I'd go out with them. Or, or or my boss, or I wouldn't go out. Mm. And everybody else is out there partying, but I didn't want to see it because I would have had to do something about it because it's wrong. Mm. So instead of fixing it or having a talk and being a leader like I should have been back then, I just didn't look at it. So I thought that was taking care of my men. So I wish I would have done the right thing because it's always the right thing when you do the right thing, right? There's no way you can go around that when you do the right thing, legal, moral, and ethical, 
I don't care who puts you down or talks to you. You're still in the right. Hmm. I don't want to get into the whole, you know, well, what's legal, moral, and ethical to another culture. Okay. Now I'm talking about me and our men, you know what I mean? So hmm. there's a, there's a whole nother conversation to get into with the world about who, what's legal, moral, and ethical, but generally right. I shouldn't have been messing around on my wife. I shouldn't have been drinking as much as I was. And I should have been making proper leadership decisions, even though they would have sucked for some people. But I did it too. And I thought, well, I can't really, you know, who am I to do this now? Who am I to step in and, and take action? Right. Hmm. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have fired people. I just, I should have gone in and talked to people about how that's not right. Cause I knew it wasn't right. We all know it's not right. But it's the culture that we live in as warriors, and it seems right. It seems normal. And it has been since the dawn of time. Yeah. Um, the last question is, in this next phase of life that you're going through right now, what, what, is you, what, is, what would you define as your new purpose? My new purpose is raising awareness um, to veterans and their spouses and their families about how to better prepare for the rapid paced lifestyle and the demanding lifestyle of special operations, whether it's support or the operator or the assaulter, whatever they want to call them these days, we're all, we're all a team. We're all a family. We all work together. Um, God, I just want to, I want to bring awareness to, to help the mental health and the physical health of these veterans and these warriors and their families because they're giving up so much to help so many. And then all I see happening is when they get out, they're going to social media and blasting other people or the libtards or, or these people or that people. And it got to a point. I mean, when I met my wife, she was completely opposite from me, right? She was in the creative world. She's one of those, what we would call a libtard, you know, she's one of those, and I say this and she hates it. If I'm Donald Trump, she's Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, we were that far apart. <laughs> we came together and have done so much together to help so many people that when we're on the phone and, and a lot of these guys and they don't realize that they're just regurgitating. I did it, too. You know, you fucking liberals don't know shit. You Greenpeace people, you, you know, this and that. We just say things without thinking. I did. At least I did. Um, my wife has saved more people who talks about libtards and liberals and those damn liberals. And my wife's just smiling the whole time. And, you know, neither of us are deeply conservative or deeply liberal, right? We're in the middle with humanity. We just, we just want people to treat each other right and do the right thing, you know, without lying. And, and who knows who to believe anymore, but we get out and guys spend so much time bickering with the same people they fought for their entire careers. We're all American. Right. We're all humans and then we're all Americans. But we always seem to put ourselves in clans. Right. I mean, look at Africa. They went to shit. They put themselves in clans. We put ourselves in clans and tribes. I mean, we're working our way to the same the same existence. Hmm. I mean, we're all I mean, we love America. Do we? Do you love Indiana more than Illinois or do you love America? Do you, do you, do you love Alabama? Do you love the tide? Do you love Clemson? I mean, we always find a reason to go at each other. And competition is spirited and it's great and healthy, but we're literally have turned on each other and are attacking each other now. Right. Mm. I mean, it just gets vicious and violent. And I sit back and I'm like, I bet if they just had another conversation and they didn't know each other and they met in a bar or somewhere and they were talking, 
that they could have a conversation. You know, people have different points of view, but we just want to raise awareness to people that, that living healthy and happy is okay. You don't need to fall on your sword every day for everything. And then a different point of view is okay. But, but open your mind up like you did before when you joined the military and you were thrust into this crazy world of totally different things than you were ever used to. Now you're just doing it again. Mm-hmm. Right? Go back to the civilian world. Learn as much as you can about your enemy, whatever you want to call them. Use a military term, right? You got guys who can't change military terms. We're going to have an op order. You mean a meeting? Uh, well, whatever. You know, getting 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 the damn getting a talk. You mean the boardroom? You know, it's just people don't assimilate as as well or as quickly, or they fight it the rest of their lives. And like, well, you'll always be different. You'll always be fighting. Look around you, you know, and and blend in with those people. And I'm not saying assimilate and give in. I'm saying blend in. Nobody likes you know attack in a room of balloons, right? I literally just made that up, by the way, but that was good. That was good. I know. I was like, wow, (laughs) don't be the tack in a room full of balloons. You'll end up popping and you don't know why. So it's people just fall on that abrasive sword every time. This is the way it is. It's really not. This this planet is so big. If you stop for a moment and thought about what you really occupied on this planet. You know, I occupy about a half of a square foot on this planet as I'm standing up at any one time. How many millions and millions and millions of square billions of square feet are on this planet? And I'm occupying a half of it. (laughs) Why am I so wrapped around the axle about so many different things that really are just people complaining about shit they don't understand? And we all know it's fear. We all know it's fear that drives those feelings. We fear that we fear the unknown. We're afraid of what we don't understand. And so we attack it. Mm. That's so true. Man, um, this is like a, this. We've already been on this for two hours. This is <laughs> that has gone by so fast. I, I, that's like the Titanic. We just watched the Titanic, and uh, <laughs> it just went down. <laughs> it just went down. Um, and everybody sat around and go, "What do we do?" <laughs> um, how how do people get involved with what you guys have going on? I know the LinkedIn, the Instagram, the website. What are the platforms that people can? Uh, not only just see what you guys are doing, but uh, maybe get more involved. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, the book drives you there. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and then the website. Um, everything's really tied together. People ask, and like I said earlier, I tell you people, hey, well, what can I do? I want to help. Here's here's our, here's our thing now. So many people have said that it's like a good way to say goodbye. All right, man, let me know if I can help. Or I'd love to help. Just let me know. I don't know what that person can do, right? So number one, money. <laughs> Tons of money. Everybody needs money. It makes the world go round and it's embarrassing to ask for. But I'm getting better at it because to help people, we need money. We need money to run retreats. Nobody does everything for free. No, Really, nobody does anything for free. So, you know, if, if, if a million people donated a dollar, right, that's a million dollars to help people. But we always have the same donors, the same friends who donate a hundred here, a hundred and they keep doing it. And I'm like, all these people that want to help. If anybody gave a dollar, if I had a million people donate a dollar day, you know, and that'd be great. I tell these people, we all have a responsibility in life, right? What is your response to your ability, which we don't know? Hmm. You have an ability. Are you a therapist? What's your response to that? If you want to help email us 
you know, on the website, there's, there's a, there's an email address there. You can donate there. You can, you can tell us in an email, here's how I can help. I would like to help. I'm available on these hours or these days or on weekends, but here is what I can do. If you can fit me into something, you know, cause we don't know people's skills. I want to help. Okay. Well, what can you do? I don't know what you can do. I mean, my wife and I run around all day. We're on the phone. We're packing shirts, signing books. We're writing a book, doing online content. We're running our own website. You know, we're running our own this and our own that. Her and I are doing pretty much 99% of all the work in this foundation to try to get it all done. You know, we brought in a CEO to help with budgeting and managing the, the bigger picture stuff that we didn't want to do, right? We didn't understand it at the time, and we didn't want to have to do that. And We wanted to give our donors a good feeling that we had somebody running the ship at a time when we needed it to give them confidence to give us money. But, you know, we have a therapist we have to bring in. So we've have a, a child therapist who's offered his time to help with the children, you know, over the phone or face to face at their local. And we start to run these retreats and we've had people that offered up, um, you know, they're like uh, travel guides, you know, Hey, where do you want to do retreats? We'll help you find places that, that offer these retreats and uh, help price it out and things like that. Or if you own a hotel and you want to donate 10 rooms, you know what I mean? There's all millions of kinds of ways that people can help us. We don't know them. So when people always ask us, you know, Hey, I want to help in this and that. I kind of just send back, here's my email. Tell me what you can do and I'll put you to work, you know? And then half of those people disappear. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And then the other half are like, Whoa, Whoa, wait a minute. What? And then a quarter of those people might email me. You know, and then an eighth of that quarter I'll be able to use. So when people think you got it going on, you guys are doing great things. It's like, you know what? It's a struggle every day to have the money and the people to make it all come together because we're we're travel agents. We're booking. We're therapists. We're you know, we're talking to people all the time. And oh, by the way, we're out talking to raise money. We're out to push the book to help get more money to, to bring it to the foundation. So we're nonstop. So we're looking for all kinds of ways or ideas and, you know, lawyers could help online website developers could help. Literally there's no end to what people could help us with if they just have a skill and the time to do it. You know, we'll put people to work. What's you guys' email, but off the top of your head. Mine is Tom at all secure foundation.org. Jen has one as well as Jen at all secure foundation.org information at all secure foundation.org as well. And, uh, what you, Tom, do you have any closing thoughts, uh, as, as we, end this podcast, do you have anything that you want to close off with? Yeah, my, you know what? My closing thoughts are this. Um, a lot of people want to help veterans or they say they want to help veterans. And then there's a lot of, veterans on tv that don't give that impression of what most of the veterans are if you you get my meaning it's we don't want that vision of the homeless jobless veteran out there begging for money all right we want our vision out there of these leaders these people who have been in these wars and have led people or know what it's like to lead and by the way you have to know how to follow before you can lead and these these great followers that were veterans that can come out and give back to these communities, but they need help. And there's, there's not enough help. I mean, there's not enough organizations out there. We can't rely on the VA. So if there's any, if there's anybody that has any inkling of helping 
or pitching in or or assisting veterans and their families overcome is is what is it you can give and i'm not saying just our organization there's other organizations whatever you believe in do your research find out where your money's going and then give your money properly you know some of these organizations take and use most of the money for what i don't know what they're using them for right we, we dig into as many organizations as we can to see who we want to partner with. And we dig pretty deep because those records are out there. And I, 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 I tell people that dig in to who you're helping, get to know who you're helping. That way, most of your money is going to actually do what you want it to do versus pay for people to have jobs and do fundraisers. You know, we see people that do fundraisers and they use the money they raised during the fundraiser to throw another fundraiser. I mean, that's a perpetual party, but who's getting help? We just want people to know that, um, that, that it's not that hard to help people. It's really not that hard. If you're invested and want to, all you have to do is reach out and have something to offer. Other than that, just say, thanks for what you're doing. You know, it's, uh, even Congress, we don't get a lot of vets up here. We don't like to talk about PTS because we don't know how to approach it. And we were like, just approach it like you approach anyone else. Hey, how are you doing? What's bothering you? What do you do? What are you doing today? You know, just talk to people. You don't have to walk up and go, hey, did you ever kill anybody? And are you screwed up over it? You know, there's a way to talk to people. But people just want to feel connected and loved. So just be decent to each other. That's my PSA. Just be decent to each other. <laughs> I love that. That's that's what we need more of. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what we need more of. One hundred percent. So, Command Sergeant Major retired Tom Satterley. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an honor and privilege of mine to to be able to interview you, and I, I'm looking forward to um, putting this out. But also know that if you're listening to this podcast, all the links and everything, including donation links, links to the book links to what um, uh, Tom has going on will be in the notes of this podcast so you could find it there. Um, I appreciate your time, man, and I appreciate everything you're doing for the community um, after your time in service, after your time is up, you're, you're serving a new purpose and mission that's super impactful and super meaningful, but also super needed. So thank you so much. I appreciate having me on here, and I love what you guys are doing, and I love that you chose to have us come on and spread the word, and I really appreciate that. Cool. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.